This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. It's read by Amy Graymore for LibriVox. It runs one hour, 59 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Recording by Amy Graymore. Part 1. A considerable number of hunting parties were out that year, without finding so much as a fresh trail, for the moose were uncommonly shy, and the various nimrods returned to the bosoms of their respective families with the best excuses the facts of their imaginations could suggest. Dr. Cathcart, among others, came back without a trophy. But he brought instead the memory of an experience which he declares was worth all the bull moose that had ever been shot. But then Cathcart, of Aberdeen, was interested in other things besides moose, amongst them the vagaries of the human mind. This particular story, however, found no mention in his book on collective hallucination, for the simple reason, so he confided once to a fellow colleague, that he himself played too intimate a part in it to form a competent judgment of the affair as a whole. Besides himself and his guide, Hank Davis, there was young Simpson, his nephew, a divinity student destined for the wee Kirk, then on his first visit to Canadian backwoods, and the latter's guide, Defago. Joseph Defago was a French Canuck, who had strayed from his native province of Quebec years before, and had got caught in rat portage when the Canadian Pacific Railway was a building. A man who, in addition to his unparalleled knowledge of woodcraft and bush lore, could also sing the old voyageur songs and tell a capital hunting yarn into the bargain. He was deeply susceptible, moreover, to that singular spell which the wilderness lays upon certain lonely natures. And he loved the wild solitudes with a kind of romantic passion that amounted almost to an obsession. The life of the backwoods fascinated him, whence doubtless his surpassing efficiency in dealing with their mysteries. On this particular expedition he was Hank's choice. Hank knew him and swore by him. He also swore at him, just as a pal might, and since he had a vocabulary of picturesque, if not utterly meaningless, oaths, the conversation between the two stalwart and hardy woodsmen was often of a rather lively description. This river of expletives, however, Hank agreed to damn a little, out of respect for his old hunting boss, Dr. Cathcart, whom of course he addressed after the fashion of the country, as Doc, and also because he understood that young Simpson was already a bit of a parson. He had, however, one objection to Defago, and one only, which was that the French-Canadian sometimes exhibited what Hank described as the output of a cursed and dismal mind, meaning apparently that he sometimes was true to type, Latin type, and suffered fits of a kind of silent moroseness when nothing could induce him to utter speech. Defago, that is to say, was imaginative and melancholy and as a rule it was too long a spell of civilization that induced the attacks, for a few days of the wilderness invariably cured them, 
This, then, was the party of four that found themselves in camp the last week in October of that shy moose year, way up in the wilderness north of Rat Portage, a forsaken and desolate country. There was also Punk, an Indian, who had accompanied Dr. Cathcart and Hank on their hunting trips in previous years, and who acted as a cook. His duty was merely to stay in camp, catch fish, and prepare venison steaks and coffee at a few minutes' notice. He dressed in the worn-out clothes bequeathed to him by former patrons, and except for his coarse black hair and dark skin, he looked in these city garments no more like a real redskin than a stage negro looks like a real African. For all that, however, Punk had in him still the instincts of his dying race. His taciturn silence and his endurance survived, also his superstition. The party round the blazing fire that night were despondent, for a week had passed without a single sign of recent moose discovering itself. Defago had sung his song and plunged into a story, but Hank, in bad humor, reminded him so often that he kept mussing up the fact so, that it was most all nothing but a petered-out lie, that the Frenchman had finally subsided into a sulky silence which nothing seemed likely to break. Dr. Cathcart and his nephew were fairly done after an exhausting day. Punk was washing up the dishes, grunting to himself under the lean-to of branches, where he later also slept. No one troubled to stir the slowly dying fire. Overhead the stars were brilliant in a sky quite wintry, and there was so little wind that ice was already forming stealthily along the shores of the still lake behind them. The silence of the vast, listening forest stole forward and enveloped them. Hank broke in suddenly with his nasal voice. "'I'm in favor of breaking new ground tomorrow, Doc,' he observed with energy, looking across at his employer. "'We don't stand a dead dago's chance around here.' "'Agreed,' said Cathcart, always a man of few words. "'Think the idea is good.' "'Sure, Pop, it's good,' Hank resumed with confidence. "'Suppose now you and I strike west, up Garden Lakeway for a change. "'None of us ain't touched that quiet bit of land yet.' "'I'm with you.' "'And you, Defago, take Simpson along in the small canoe, "'skip across the lake, portage over into Fifty Island water, "'and take a good squint down that thar southern shore.' The moose yarded there like hell last year, and for all we know they may be doing it again this year, just to spite us. Defago, keeping his eyes on the fire, said nothing by way of reply. He was still offended, possibly, about his interrupted story. "'No one's been up that way this year, and I'll lay my bottom dollar on that,' Hank added with emphasis, as though he had a reason for knowing. He looked over at his partner sharply. "'Better take the little silk tent and stay away a couple of nights,' he concluded." as though the matter were definitely settled, for Hank was recognized as general organizer of the hunt, and in charge of the party. It was obvious to anyone that Defago did not jump at the plan, but his silence seemed to convey something more than ordinary disapproval, and across his sensitive dark face there passed a curious expression, like a flash of firelight, not so quickly, however, that the three men had not time to catch it. He funked for some reason, I thought. "'Simpson said afterwards in the tent he shared with his uncle. "'Dr. Cathcart made no immediate reply, "'although the look had interested him enough at the time "'for him to make a mental note of it. "'The expression had caused him a passing uneasiness "'he could not quite account for at the moment. "'But Hank, of course, had been the first to notice it, 
and the odd thing was that instead of becoming explosive or angry over the other's reluctance, he at once began to humor him a bit. "'But there ain't no special reason why no one's been up there this year,' he said with a perceptible hush in his tone. "'Not the reason you mean, anyway. Last year it was the fires that kept folks out, and this year I guess—I guess it just happened, so that's all.' His manner was clearly meant to be encouraging." Joseph Trafago raised his eyes a moment, then dropped them again. A breath of wind stole out over the forest and stirred the embers into a passing blaze. Dr. Cathcart again noticed the expression in the guide's face, and again he did not like it. But this time the nature of the look betrayed itself. In those eyes, for an instant, he caught the gleam of a man scared in his very soul. It disquieted him more than he cared to admit. "'Bad Indians up that way?' he asked with a laugh to ease matters a little, while Simpson, too sleepy to notice this subtle by-play, moved off to bed with a prodigious yawn. Or, or anything wrong with the country, he added when his nephew was out of hearing. Hank met his eye with something less than his usual frankness. He's just scared, he replied good-humouredly. Scared stiff about some old fairy tale. That's all, ain't it, old pard? And he gave Defago a friendly kick on the moccasined foot that lay nearest the fire. Defago looked up quickly, as from an interrupted reverie, a reverie, however, that had not prevented his seeing all that went on about him. "'Scared nothing,' he answered with a flush of defiance. "'There's nothing in the bush that can scare Joseph Defago, and don't you forget it.' And the natural energy with which he spoke made it impossible to know whether he told the whole truth or only part of it. Hank turned towards the doctor. He was just going to add something when he stopped abruptly and looked around. A sound close behind them in the darkness made all three start. It was old Punk, who had moved up from his lean-to while they talked, and now stood there just beyond the circle of firelight, listening. "'Another time, Doc,' Hank whispered with a wink, "'when the gallery ain't stepped down into the stalls.' And springing to his feet, he slapped the Indian on the back and cried noisily, "'Come up to the fire and warm your dirty red skin a bit.' He dragged him towards the blaze and threw more wood on. "'That was a mighty good feed you give us an hour or two back,' he continued heartily, as though to set the man's thoughts on another scent. "'And it ain't Christian to let you stand out there freezing your old soul to hell while we're getting all good and toasted.' Punk moved in and warmed his feet, smiling darkly at the other's volubility, which he only half understood, but saying nothing. And presently Dr. Cathcart, seeing that further conversation was impossible, followed his nephew's example and moved off to the tent, leaving the three men smoking over the now blazing fire. It's not easy to undress in a small tent without waking one's companion, and Cathcart, hardened and warm-blooded as he was, in spite of his fifty-odd years, did what Hank would have described as considerable of his twilight in the open. He noticed during the process that Punk had meanwhile gone back to his lean-to, and that Hank and Defago were at it hammer and tongs, or rather hammer and anvil, the little French-Canadian being the anvil. It was all very like the conventional stage picture of Western melodrama, the fire lighting up their faces with patches of alternate red and black, Defago and slouch hat and moccasins in the part of the Badlands villain, Hank open-faced and hatless, with that reckless fling of his soldiers, the honest and deceived hero, and old punk, eavesdropping in the background, supplying the atmosphere of mystery. The doctor smiled as he noticed the details. 
but at the same time something deep within him, he hardly knew what, shrank a little, as though an almost imperceptible breath of warning had touched the surface of his soul and was gone again before he could seize it. Probably it was traceable to that scared expression he had seen in the eyes of Devago. Probably, for this hint of fugitive emotion otherwise escaped his usually so keen analysis. Devago, he was vaguely aware, might cause trouble somehow. He was not as steady a guide as Hank, for instance. Further than that he could not get. He watched the men a moment longer before diving into the stuffy tent, where Simpson already slept soundly. Hank, he saw, was swearing like a mad African in a New York nigger saloon. But it was the swearing of affection. The ridiculous oaths flew freely now that the cause of their obstruction was asleep. Presently he put his arm almost tenderly upon his comrade's shoulder, and they moved off together into the shadows where their tent stood faintly glimmering. Punk, too, a moment later followed their example and disappeared between his odorous blankets in the opposite direction. Dr. Cathcart then likewise turned in, weariness and sleep still fighting in his mind, with an obscure curiosity to know what it was that had scared Defago about the country up Fifty Island Waterway, wondering, too, why Punk's presence had prevented the completion of what Hank had to say. Then sleep overtook him. He would know tomorrow. Hank would tell him the story while they trudged after the elusive moose. Deep silence fell about the little camp, planted there so audaciously in the jaws of the wilderness. The lake gleamed like a sheet of black glass beneath the stars. The cold air pricked. In the draughts of night that poured their silent tide from the depths of the forest, with messages from distant ridges and from lakes just beginning to freeze, there lay already the faint, bleak odors of coming winter. White men, with their dull scent, might never have divined them. The fragrance of the wood fire would have concealed from them these almost electrical hints of moss and bark in hardening swamp a hundred miles away. Even Hank and Defago, subtly in league with the soul of the woods as they were, would probably have spread their delicate nostrils in vain. But an hour later, when all slept like the dead, old Punk crept from his blankets and went down to the shore of the lake like a shadow, silently, as only Indian blood can move. He raised his head and looked about him, the thick darkness rendered sight of small avail. But like the animals, he possessed other senses that darkness could not mute. He listened, then sniffed the air. Motionless as a hemlock stem, he stood there. After five minutes again he lifted his head and sniffed, and yet once again. A tingling of the wonderful nerves that betrayed itself by no outer sign ran through him as he tested the keen air then merging his figure into the surrounding blackness in a way that only wild men and animals understand, he turned, still moving like a shadow, and went stealthily back to his lean-to and his bed. And soon after he slept, the change of wind he had divined stirred gently the reflection of the stars within the lake. Rising among the far ridges of the country, beyond Fifty Island Water, it came from the direction in which he had stared, and it passed over the sleeping camp with a faint and sighing murmur through the tops of the big trees that was almost too delicate to be audible. With it down the desert paths of night, though too faint, too high even for the Indian's hair-like nerves, there passed a curious thin odor, 
strangely disquieting, an odor of something that seemed unfamiliar, utterly unknown. The French-Canadian and the man of Indian blood each stirred uneasily in his sleep just about this time, though neither of them woke. Then the ghost of that unforgettably strange odor passed away and was lost among the leagues of tenantless forest beyond. Part 2 In the morning the camp was astir before the sun. There had been a light fall of snow during the night, and the air was sharp. Punk had done his duty betimes, for the odors of coffee and fried bacon reached every tent. All were in good spirits. "'Wind's shifted,' cried Hank vigorously, watching Simpson and his guide already loading the small canoe. "'It's across the lake. Dead right for you fellows. And the snow will make bully trails. If there's any moose mussing around up thar, they'll not get so much as a tail-end scent of you, with the wind as it is. "'Good luck, Monsieur Defago.' he added facetiously, giving the name its French pronunciation for once. Bon chance! Defago returned the good wishes, apparently in the best of spirits, the silent mood gone. Before eight o'clock, old Punk had the camp to himself. Cathcart and Hank were far along the trail that led westwards, while the canoe that carried Defago and Simpson, with silk tent and grub for two days, was already a dark speck bobbing on the bosom of the lake, going due east. The wintry sharpness of the air was tempered now by a sun that topped the wooded ridges and blazed with a luxurious warmth upon the world of lake and forest below. Loons flew skimming through the sparkling spray that the wind lifted. Divers shook their dripping heads to the sun and popped smartly out of sight again, and as far as eye could reach rose the leagues of endless, crowding bush, desolate in its lonely sweep and grandeur untrodden by foot of man, and stretching its mighty and unbroken carpet right up to the frozen shores of Hudson Bay. Simpson, who saw it all for the first time, as he paddled hard in the bows of the dancing canoe, was enchanted by its austere beauty. His heart drank in the sense of freedom in great spaces, just as his lungs drank in the cool and perfumed wind. Behind him in the stern seat, singing fragments of his native shanties, Defago steered the craft of birch-bark, like a thing of life, answering cheerfully all his companions' questions. Both were gay and light-hearted. On such occasions men lose the superficial, worldly distinctions. They become human beings working together for a common end. Simpson the employer, and Defago the employed, among these primitive forces, were simply two men, the guider and the guided. Superior knowledge, of course, assumed control, and the younger man fell without a second thought into the quasi-subordinate position. He never dreamed of objecting, when Defago dropped the mister, and addressed him as, Say Simpson, or Simpson Boss, which was invariably the case before they reached the farther shore after a stiff paddle of twelve miles against a headwind. He only laughed and liked it, then ceased to notice it at all. For this divinity student was a young man of parts and character, though as yet, of course, untraveled, and on this trip, the first time he had seen any country but his own and little Switzerland, the huge scale of things somewhat bewildered him. It was one thing, he realized, to hear about primeval forests, but quite another to see them, while to dwell in them and seek acquaintance with their wild life was, again, 
an initiation that no intelligent man could undergo without a certain shifting of personal values hitherto held for permanent and sacred. Simpson knew the first faint indication of this emotion when he held the new three o three rifle in his hands and looked along its pair of faultless gleaming barrels. The three days' journey to their headquarters, by lake and portage, had carried the process a stage farther, and now that he was about to plunge beyond even the fringe of wilderness, where they were camped into the virgin heart of uninhabited regions as vast as Europe itself, the true nature of the situation stole upon him with an effect of delight and awe that his imagination was fully capable of appreciating. It was himself and Defago against a multitude at least, against a titan. The bleak splendors of these remote and lonely forests rather overwhelmed him with the sense of his own littleness. That stern quality of the tangled backwoods, which can only be described as merciless and terrible, rose out of these far blue woods, swimming upon the horizon, and revealed itself. He understood the silent warning. He realized his own utter helplessness. Only Defago, as a symbol of a distant civilization where man was master, and a pitiless death by exhaustion and starvation. It was thrilling to him, therefore, to watch Defago turn over the canoe upon the shore, pack the paddles carefully underneath, and then proceed to blaze the spruce stems for some distance on either side of an almost invisible trail, with the careless remark thrown in, "'Say, Simpson, if anything happens to me, you'll find the canoe all correct by these marks. Then strike due west into the sun to hit the home camp again, see?' It was the most natural thing in the world to say, and he said it without any noticeable inflection of the voice, only it happened to express the youth's emotion at the time, with an utterance that was symbolic of the situation, and of his own helplessness as a factor in it. He was alone with Defago in a primitive world. That was all. The canoe, another symbol of man's ascendancy, was now to be left behind. Those small yellow patches, made on the trees by the axe, were the only indications of its hiding-place. Meanwhile, shouldering the packs between them, each man carried his own rifle. They followed the slender trail over rocks and fallen trunks, and across half-frozen swamps, skirting numerous lakes that fairly gemmed the forest, their borders fringed with mist, and towards five o'clock found themselves suddenly on the edge of the woods, looking out across a large sheet of water in front of them, dotted with pine-clad islands, of all describable shapes and sizes. Fifty island water,' announced Defago wearily, "'and the sun just going to dip his bald old head into it,' he added with unconscious poetry, and immediately they set about pitching camp for the night. In a very few minutes, under those skillful hands that never made a movement too much or a movement too little, the silk tent stood taut and cozy, the beds of balsam boughs ready laid, and a brisk cooking fire burned with the minimum of smoke, while the young Scotchman cleaned the fish they had caught trolling behind the canoe. Defago guessed he would just as soon take a turn through the bush for indications of moose. May come across a trunk where they been and rubbed horns, he said as he moved off, or feeding on the last of the maple leaves, and he was gone. His small figure melted away like a shadow in the dusk, while Simpson noted with a kind of admiration. How easily the forest absorbed him into herself. A few steps, it seemed, and he was no longer visible. Yet there was little underbrush hereabouts. The trees stood somewhat apart, well spaced, 
and in the clearings grew silver birch and maple, spear-like and slender, against the immense stems of spruce and hemlock. But for occasional prostrate monsters, and the boulders of grey rock that thrust uncouth shoulders here and there out of the ground, it might well have been a bit of park in the old country. Almost one might have seen it in the hand of man. A little to the right, however, began the great burnt section, miles in extent, proclaiming its real character. Brule, as it was called, with the fires of the previous year, had raged for weeks, and the blackened stumps now rose gaunt and ugly, bereft of branches, like gigantic match-heads, stuck into the ground, savage and desolate beyond words. The perfume of charcoal and rain-soaked ashes still hung faintly about it. The dusk rapidly deepened. The glades grew dark. The crackling of the fire and the wash of little waves along the rocky lake shore were the only sounds audible. The wind had dropped with the sun, and in all that vast world of branches nothing stirred. Any moment, it seemed, the woodland gods, who are to be worshipped in silence and loneliness, might stretch their mighty and terrific outlines among the trees. In front, through the doorways pillared by huge straight stems, lay the stretch of fifty island water, a crescent-shaped lake some fifteen miles from tip to tip, and perhaps five miles across, where they were camped. A sky of rose and saffron, more clear than any atmosphere Simpson had ever known, still dropped its pale streaming fires across the waves, where the islands, a hundred surely, rather than fifty, floated like fairy barks of some enchanted fleet, fringed with pines whose crests fingered most delicately the sky. They almost seemed to move upwards as the light faded, about to weigh anchor and navigate the pathways of the heavens instead of the currents of their native and desolate lake and strips of colored cloud, like flaunting pennons, signaled their departure to the stars. The beauty of the scene was strangely uplifting. Simpson smoked the fish and burnt his fingers into the bargain in his efforts to enjoy it, and at the same time tend the frying-pan and the fire. Yet ever at the back of his thoughts lay that other aspect of the wilderness, the indifference to human life, the merciless spirit of desolation which took no note of man, the sense of his utter loneliness, now that even Defago had gone, came close as he looked about him and listened for the sound of his companion's returning footsteps. There was pleasure in the sensation, yet with it a perfectly comprehensible alarm, and instinctively the thought stirred in him. What should I, could I do, if anything happened and he did not come back? They enjoyed their well-earned supper, eating untold quantities of fish, and drinking unmilked tea strong enough to kill men who had not covered thirty miles of hard going, eating little on the way. And when it was over, they smoked and told stories round the blazing fire, laughing, stretching weary limbs, and discussing plans for the morrow. Defago was in excellent spirits, though disappointed at having no signs of moose to report. But it was dark and he had not gone far. The brule, too, was bad. His clothes and hands were smeared with charcoal. Simpson, watching him, realized with renewed vividness their position, alone together in the wilderness. "'Defago,' he said presently, "'these woods, you know, are a bit too big to feel quite at home in, to feel comfortable in, I mean, eh?' He merely gave expression to the mood of the moment. He was hardly prepared for the earnestness, the solemnity even, 
with which the guide took him up. "'You've hit it right, Simpson, boss,' he replied, fixing his searching brown eyes on his face. "'And that's the truth, sure. There's no end to him, no end at all.' Then he added, in a lowered tone, as if to himself, "'There's lots found out that, and gone plumb to pieces.' But the man's gravity of manner was not quite to the other's liking. It was a little too suggestive for this scenery and setting. He was sorry he had broached the subject. He remembered suddenly how his uncle had told him that men were sometimes stricken with a strange fever of the wilderness, when the seduction of the uninhabited wastes caught them so fiercely that they went forth, half fascinated, half deluded, to their death. And he had a shrewd idea that his companion held something in sympathy with that queer type. He led the conversation on to the other topics, on to Hank and the doctor, for instance, and the natural rivalry as to who should get the first sight of Moose. "'If they went due west,' observed Defago carelessly, "'there's sixty miles between us now, with old Punk at Halfway House eating himself full to Boston with fish and coffee.' They laughed together over the picture. But the casual mention of those sixty miles again made Simpson realize the prodigious scale of this land where they hunted. Sixty miles was a mere step. Two hundred little more than a step. Stories of lost hunters rose persistently before his memory. The passion and mystery of homeless and wandering men, seduced by the beauty of great forests, swept his soul in a way too vivid to be pleasant. He wondered vaguely whether it was the mood of his companion that invited the unwelcome suggestion with such persistence. "'Sing us a song, Defago, if you're not too tired,' he asked. "'One of those old voyageur songs you sang the other night.' He handed his tobacco pouch to the guide, and then filled his own pipe, while the Canadian, nothing loth, sent his light voice across the lake in one of those plaintive, almost melancholy shanties, with which lumbermen and trappers lessen the burden of their labor. There was an appealing and romantic flavor about it, something that recalled the atmosphere of the old pioneer days, when Indians and wilderness were leagued together, battles frequent, and the old country farther off than it is today. The sound traveled pleasantly over the water, but the forest at their backs seemed to swallow it down with a single gulp that permitted neither echo nor resonance. It was in the middle of the third verse that Simpson noticed something unusual, something that brought his thoughts back with a rush from faraway scenes. A curious change had come into the man's voice. Even before he knew what it was, uneasiness caught him, and looking up quickly he saw that Devago, though still singing, was peering about him into the bush, as though he heard or saw something. His voice grew fainter, dropped to a hush, then ceased altogether. The same instant, with a movement amazingly alert, he started to his feet and stood upright, sniffing the air. Like a dog scenting game, he drew the air into his nostrils in short, sharp breaths, turning quickly as he did so, in all directions, and finally pointing down the lake shore eastwards. It was a performance unpleasantly suggestive, and at the same time singularly dramatic. Simpson's heart flooded disagreeably as he watched it. "'Lord, man, how you made me jump!' he exclaimed, on his feet beside him the same instant, and peering over his shoulder into the sea of darkness. "'What's up? Are you frightened?' Even before the question was out of his mouth, he knew it was foolish, for any man with a pair of eyes in his head could see that the Canadian had turned white down to his very gills. 
Not even sunburn and the glare of the fire could hide that. The student felt himself trembling a little, weakish in the knees. "'What's up?' he repeated quickly. "'Do you smell moose? "'Or anything queer, anything wrong?' "'He lowered his voice instinctively. "'The forest pressed round them, with its encircling wall. "'The nearer tree-stems gleamed like bronze in the firelight. "'Beyond that, blackness, and so far as he could tell, a silence of death. "'Just behind them a passing puff of wind lifted a single leaf.' looked at it, then laid it softly down again, without disturbing the rest of the covey. It seemed as if a million invisible causes had combined just to produce that single visible effect. Other life pulsed about them, and was gone. Defago turned abruptly. The livid hue of his face had turned to a dirty gray. "'I never said I heard or smelt nothing,' he said slowly and emphatically, in an oddly altered voice, that conveyed somehow a touch of defiance. I was only taking a look around, so to speak. It's always a mistake to be too previous with your questions. Then he added suddenly, with obvious effort, in his more natural voice, Have you got the matches, Boss Simpson? And proceeded to light the pipe he had half filled just before he began to sing. Without speaking another word, they sat down again by the fire. Defago changing his side so that he could face the direction the wind came from for even a tenderfoot could tell that. Defago changed his position in order to hear and smell all there was to be heard and smelt, and since he now faced the lake with his back to the trees, it was evidently nothing in the forest that had sent so strange and sudden a warning to his marvelously trained nerves. "'Guess now I don't feel like singing any,' he explained presently of his own accord. "'That song kind of brings back memories that's troublesome to me.' I never ought to have begun it. It sets me on imagining things, see? Clearly the man was still fighting with some profoundly moving emotion. He wished to excuse himself in the eyes of the other. But the explanation, in that it was only part of the truth, was a lie, and he knew perfectly well that Simpson was not deceived by it. For nothing could explain away the livid terror that had dropped over his face while he stood there sniffing the air. And nothing— no amount of blazing fire or chatting on ordinary subjects could make that camp exactly as it had been before. The shadow of an unknown horror, naked if unguessed, that had flashed for an instant in the face and gestures of the guide, had also communicated itself, vaguely and therefore more potently, to his companion. The guide's visible efforts to dissemble the truth only made things worse. Moreover, to add to the younger man's uneasiness was the difficulty, nay, the impossibility he felt of asking questions, and also his complete ignorance as to the cause. Indians, wild animals, forest fires, all these he knew were wholly out of the question. His imagination searched vigorously, but in vain. Yet somehow or other, after another long spell of smoking, talking, and roasting themselves before the great fire, the shadow that had so suddenly invaded their peaceful camp began to skirt. Perhaps Defago's efforts, or the return of his quiet and normal attitude, accomplished this. Perhaps Simpson himself had exaggerated the fare out of all proportion to the truth. Or possibly the vigorous air of the wilderness brought its own powers of healing. Whatever the cause— the feeling of immediate horror seemed to have passed away 
as mysteriously as it had come, for nothing occurred to feed it. Simpson began to feel that he had permitted himself the unreasoning terror of a child. He put it down partly to a certain subconscious excitement that this wild and immense scenery generated in his blood, partly to the spell of solitude, and partly to over-fatigue. That pallor in the guide's face was, of course, uncommonly hard to explain, yet it might have been due in some way to an effect of firelight or his own imagination. He gave it the benefit of the doubt. He was Scotch. When a somewhat unordinary emotion has disappeared, the mind always finds a dozen ways of explaining away its causes. Simpson lit a last pipe and tried to laugh to himself. On getting home to Scotland it would make quite a good story. He did not realize that his laughter was a sign that terror still lurked in the recesses of his soul, that, in fact, it was merely one of the conventional signs by which a man, seriously alarmed, tries to persuade himself that he is not so. Defago, however, heard that low laughter and looked up with surprise on his face. The two men stood side by side, kicking the embers about before going to bed. It was ten o'clock, a late hour for hunters to be still awake. "'What's tickling yer?' he asked in his ordinary tone, yet gravely. "'I I was thinking of our little toy woods at home just at that moment,' stammered Simpson, coming back to what really dominated his mind, and startled by the question, and comparing them to, to all this, and he swept his arms round him to indicate the bush. A pause followed in which neither of them said anything. "'All the same, I wouldn't laugh about it, if I was you,' Defago added, looking over Simpson's shoulder into the shadows. "'There's places in there nobody won't never see into. Nobody knows what lives in there either.' "'Too big, too far off?' The suggestion in the guide's manner was immense and horrible. Defago nodded. The expression on his face was dark. He too felt uneasy. The young man understood that in a hinterland of this size there might well be depths of woods that would never in the life of the world be known or trodden. The thought was not exactly the sort he welcomed. In a loud voice, cheerfully, he suggested that it was time for bed. But the guide lingered, tinkering with the fire, arranging the stones needlessly, doing a dozen things that did not really need doing. Evidently there was something he wanted to say, yet found it difficult to get at. "'Say you, Boss Simpson,' he began suddenly, as the last shower of sparks went up into the air. "'You don't smell nothing, do you? Nothing particular, I mean?' The commonplace question, Simpson realized, veiled a dreadfully serious thought in his mind. A shiver ran down his back. "'Nothing but burning wood,' he replied firmly, kicking again at the embers. The sound of his own foot made him start. "'And all the evening you ain't smelt nothing?' persisted the guide, peering at him through the gloom. "'Nothing extraordinary and different to anything else you ever smelt before?' "'No, no, man, nothing at all.' he replied aggressively, half angrily. Defago's face cleared. "'That's good!' he exclaimed with evident relief. "'That's good to hear.' "'Have you?' asked Simpson sharply, and the same instant regretted the question. The Canadian came closer in the darkness. He shook his head. "'I guess not,' 
he said, though without overwhelming conviction. It must have been just that song of mine that did it. It's the song they sing in lumber camps and God-forsaken places like that, when they're scared the windigos somewhere around, doing a bit of swift traveling. And what's the windigo, pray? Simpson asked quickly, irritated because again he could not prevent that sudden shiver of the nerves. He knew that he was close upon the man's terror and the cause of it. Yet a rushing, passionate curiosity overcame his better judgment and his fear. Defago turned swiftly and looked at him, as though he were suddenly about to shriek. His eyes shone, but his mouth was wide open. Yet all he said, or whispered rather, for the voice sank very low, was, "'It's nothing. Nothing but what those lousy fellers believe when they've been hitting the bottle too long. A sort of great animal that lives up yonder.' He jerked his head northwards. "'Quick as lightning in its tracks, and bigger than anything else in the bush.' and ain't supposed to be very good to look at. That's all. A backward superstition, began Simpson, moving hastily toward the tent, in order to shake off the hand of the guide that clutched his arm. Come, come, hurry up for the God's sake and get the lantern going. It's time we were in bed and asleep if we're going to be up with the sun tomorrow. The guide was close on his heels. I'm coming, he answered out of the darkness. I'm coming and after a slight delay he appeared with the lantern and hung it from a nail in the front pole of the tent. The shadows of a hundred trees shifted their places quickly as he did so, and when he stumbled over the rope, diving swiftly inside, the whole tent trembled as though a gust of wind struck it. The two men lay down, without undressing, upon their beds of soft balsam boughs, cunningly arranged. Inside all was warm and cozy, but outside— the world of crowding trees pressed close about them, marshalling their million shadows, and smothering the little tent that stood there like a wee white shell facing the ocean of tremendous forest. Between the two lonely figures within, however, there pressed another shadow that was not a shadow from the night. It was the shadow cast by the strange fear, never wholly exercised, that had leaped suddenly upon Defago in the middle of his singing. And Simpson, as he lay there, watching the darkness through the open flap of the tent, ready to plunge into the fragrant abyss of sleep, knew first that unique and profound stillness of a primeval forest when no wind stirs, and when the night has weight and substance that enters into the soul to bind a veil about it. Then sleep took him. Part 3 Thus it seemed to him, at least— Yet it was true that the lap of the water, just beyond the tent door, still beat time with his lessening pulses, when he realized that he was lying with his eyes open, and that another sound had recently introduced itself, with cunning softness, between the splash and murmur of the little waves. And long before he understood what this sound was, it had stirred in him the centers of pity and alarm. He listened intently, though at first in vain, for the running blood beat all its drums too noisily in his ears. Did it come, he wondered, from the lake or from the woods? Then suddenly, with a rush and a flutter of the heart, he knew that it was close beside him in the tent, and when he turned over for a better hearing, it focused itself, unmistakably not two feet away. It was a sound of weeping. Defago, upon his bed of branches, was sobbing in the darkness as though his heart would break the blankets evidently stuffed against his mouth to stifle it. 
and his first feeling, before he could think or reflect, was the rush of a poignant and searching tenderness. This intimate human sound, heard amid the desolation about them, woke pity. It was so incongruous, so pitifully incongruous, and so vain. Tears in this vast and cruel wilderness, of what avail? He thought of a little child crying in mid-Atlantic, then, of course, with fuller realization, and the memory of what had gone before, came the descent of the terror upon him, and his blood ran cold. Defago, he whispered quickly, "'what's the matter?' He tried to make his voice very gentle. "'Are you in pain? Unhappy?' There was no reply, but the sounds ceased abruptly. He stretched his hand out and touched him. The body did not stir. "'Are you awake?' for it occurred to him that the man was crying in his sleep. "'Are you cold?' He noticed that his feet, which were uncovered, projected beyond the mouth of the tent. He spread an extra fold of his own blankets over them. The guide had slipped down in his bed, and the branches seemed to have dragged with him. He was afraid to pull the body back again, for fear of waking him. One or two tentative questions he ventured softly, but though he waited for several minutes there came no reply nor any sign of movement. Presently he heard his regular and quiet breathing, and putting his hand again gently on his breast, felt the steady rise and fall beneath. "'Let me know if anything's wrong,' he whispered, "'or if I can do anything. "'Wake me at once if you feel queer.' He hardly knew what to say. He lay down again, thinking and wondering what it all meant. Defago, of course, had been crying in his sleep. Some dream or other had afflicted him. Yet never in his life would he forget that pitiful sound of sobbing, and the feeling that the whole awful wilderness of woods listened. His own mind busied itself for a long time with the recent events of which this took its mysterious place as one, and though his reason successfully argued away all unwelcome suggestions, a sensation of uneasiness remained, resisting ejection, very deep-seated, peculiar beyond ordinary. Part four. But sleep in the long run proves greater than all emotions. His thoughts soon wandered again. He lay there, warm as toast, exceedingly weary, the night soothed and comforted, blunting the edges of memory and alarm. Half an hour later he was oblivious of everything in the outer world about him. Yet sleep in this case was his great enemy, concealing all approaches, smothering the warning of his nerves. As sometimes, in a nightmare, events crowd upon each other's heels with a conviction of dreadfulest reality, yet some inconsistent detail accuses the whole display of incompleteness and disguise, so the events that now followed, though they actually happened, persuaded the mind somehow that the detail which could explain them had been overlooked in the confusion, and that, therefore, they were but partly true, the rest delusion. At the back of the sleeper's mind something remains awake, ready to let slip the judgment. All this is not quite real. When you wake up you'll understand. And thus in a way it was with Simpson. The events, not wholly inexplicable or incredible in themselves, yet remain for the man who saw and heard them a sequence of separate facts of cold horror, because the little piece that might have made the puzzle clear lay concealed or overlooked. So far as he can recall, it was a violent movement, 
running downwards through the tent towards the door that first woke him and made him aware that his companion was sitting bolt upright beside him, quivering. Hours must have passed, for it was the pale gleam of the dawn that revealed his outline against the canvas. This time the man was not crying. He was quaking like a leaf. The trembling he felt plainly through the blankets down the entire length of his own body. Defago had huddled down against him for protection, shrinking away from something that apparently concealed itself near the door-flaps of the little tent. Simpson thereupon called out in a loud voice some question or other. In the first bewilderment of waking he does not remember exactly what, and the man made no reply. The atmosphere and feeling of true nightmare lay horribly about him, making movement and speech both difficult. At first, indeed, he was not sure where he was, whether in one of the earlier camps or at home in his bed at Aberdeen. The sense of confusion was very troubling. And next, almost simultaneous with his waking, it seemed, the profound stillness of the dawn outside was shattered by a most uncommon sound. It came without warning or audible approach, and it was unspeakably dreadful. It was a voice, Simpson declares, possibly a human voice, hoarse yet plaintive, a soft roaring voice close outside the tent, overhead rather than upon the ground, of immense volume, while in some strange way most penetratingly and seductively sweet. It rang out, too, in three separate and distinct notes, or cries, that bore in some odd fashion a resemblance, far-fetched yet recognizable, to the name of the guide, Defago. The student admits he is unable to describe it quite intelligently, for it was unlike any sound he had ever heard in his life, and combined a blending of such contrary qualities. A sort of windy crying voice, he calls it, as of something lonely and untamed, wild and of abominable power. And even before it ceased, dropping back into the great gulfs of silence, the guide beside him had sprung to his feet with an answering though unintelligible cry. He blundered against the tent-pole with violence, shaking the whole structure, spreading his arms out frantically for more room, and kicking his legs impetuously free of the clinging blankets. For a second, perhaps two, he stood upright by the door, his outline dark against the pallor of the dawn. Then, with a furious, rushing speed, before his companion could move a hand to stop him, he shot with a plunge through the flaps of canvas, and was gone. And as he went, so astonishingly fast that the voice could actually be heard dying in the distance, he called aloud in tones of anguished terror that at the same time held something strangely, like the frenzied exultation of delight. "'Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire! Oh, oh, this height in fiery speed!' and then the distance quickly buried it, and the deep silence of very early morning descended upon the forest as before. It had all come about with such rapidity that, but for the evidence of the empty bed beside him, Simpson could almost have believed it to have been the memory of a nightmare carried over from sleep. He still felt the warm pressure of that vanished body against his side. There lay the twisted blankets in a heap, the very tent yet trembled with the vehemence of the impetuous departure. The strange words rang in his ears, as though he still heard them in the distance, 
wild language of a suddenly stricken mind. Moreover, it was not only the senses of sight and hearing that reported uncommon things to his brain, for even while the man cried and ran, he had become aware that a strange perfume, faint yet pungent, pervaded the interior of the tent. And it was at this point, it seems, brought to himself by the consciousness that his nostrils were taking this distressing odor down into his throat, that he found his courage, sprang quickly to his feet, and went out. The gray light of dawn that dropped, cold and glimmering, between the trees, revealed the scene tolerably well. There stood the tent behind him, soaked with dew, the dark ashes of the fire still warm, the lake white beneath a coating of mist, the islands rising darkly out of it like objects packed in wool, and patches of snow beyond among the clearer spaces of the bush, everything cold, still, waiting for the sun. But nowhere a sign of the vanished guide, still doubtless flying at frantic speed through the frozen woods. There was not even the sound of disappearing footsteps, nor the echoes of the dying voice. He had gone, utterly. There was nothing, nothing but the sense of his recent presence, so strongly left behind about the camp, and this penetrating, all-pervading odor. And even this was now rapidly disappearing in its turn. In spite of his exceeding mental perturbation, Simpson struggled hard to detect its nature and define it, but the ascertaining of an elusive scent, not recognized subconsciously and at once, is a very subtle operation of the mind. And he failed. It was gone before he could properly seize or name it. Approximate description, even, seems to have been difficult, for it was unlike any smell he knew. Acrid, rather, not unlike the odor of a lion, he thinks, yet softer and not wholly unpleasing, with something almost sweet in it that reminded him of the scent of decaying garden leaves, earth, and the myriad nameless perfumes that make up the odor of a big forest. Yet the odor of lions is the phrase with which he usually sums it all up. Then it was wholly gone, and he found himself standing by the ashes of the fire in a state of amazement and stupid terror that left him the helpless prey of anything that chose to happen. Had a muskrat poked its pointed muzzle over a rock, or a squirrel scuttled in that instant down the bark of a tree, he would most likely have collapsed without more ado and fainted. For he felt about the whole affair the touch somewhere of a great outer horror, and his scattered powers had not as yet had time to collect themselves into a definite attitude of fighting self-control. Nothing did happen, however. A great kiss of wind ran softly through the awakening forest, and a few maple leaves here and there rustled tremblingly to earth. The sky seemed to grow suddenly much lighter. Simpson felt the cool air upon his cheek and uncovered head, realized that he was shivering with the cold, and making a great effort, realized next that he was alone in the bush, and that he was called upon to take immediate steps to find and succor his vanished companion. Make an effort, accordingly, he did, though an ill-calculated and futile one. With that wilderness of trees about him, the sheet of water cutting him off behind, and the horror of that wild cry in his blood, he did what any other inexperienced man would have done in similar bewilderment. 
He ran about, without any sense of direction, like a frantic child, and called loudly without ceasing the name of the guide. Defago, Defago, Defago! he yelled, and the trees gave him back the name as often as he shouted, only a little softened. Defago, Defago, Defago! He followed the trail that lay a short distance across the patches of snow, and then lost it again, where the trees grew too thickly for snow to lie. He shouted till he was hoarse, until the sound of his own voice in all that unanswering and listening world began to frighten him. His confusion increased in direct ratio to the violence of his efforts. His distress became formidably acute, till at length his exertions defeated their own object, and from sheer exhaustion he headed back to the camp again. It remains a wonder that he ever found his way. It was with great difficulty, and only after numberless false clues, that he at last saw the white tent between the trees, and so reached safety. Exhaustion then applied its own remedy, and he grew calmer. He made the fire and breakfasted. Hot coffee and bacon put a little sense in judgment into him again, and he realized that he had been behaving like a boy. He now made another and more successful attempt to face the situation collectedly. And a nature naturally plucky, coming to his assistance, he decided that he must first make as thorough a search as possible, failing success in which he must find his way into the home camp as best he could and bring help. And this was what he did. Taking food, matches, and rifle with him, and a small axe to blaze the trees against his return journey, he set forth. It was eight o'clock when he started, the sun shining over the tops of the trees in a sky without clouds. Pinned to a stake by the fire, he left a note in case Defago returned while he was away. This time, according to a careful plan, he took a new direction, intending to make a wide sweep that must sooner or later cut into the indications of the guide's trail. Before he had gone a quarter of a mile, he came across the tracks of a large animal in the snow, and beside it the light and smaller tracks of what were beyond question human feet, the feet of Defago. The relief he at once experienced was natural, though brief, for at first sight he saw in these tracks a simple explanation of the whole matter. These big marks had surely been left by a bull moose. That wind against it had blundered upon the camp, and uttered its singular cry of warning and alarm the moment its mistake was apparent. Defago, in whom the hunting instinct was developed, to the point of uncanny perfection, had scented the brute coming down the wind hours before. His excitement and disappearance were due, of course, to... to his... Then the impossible explanation, at which he grasped, faded, as common sense showed him mercilessly that none of this was true. No guide much less a guide like Defago, could have acted in so irrational a way, going off even without his rifle. The whole affair demanded a far more complicated elucidation. When he remembered the details of it all, the cry of terror, the amazing language, the gray face of horror when his nostrils first caught the new odor, that muffled sobbing in the darkness, and, for this too, now came back to him dimly, the man's original aversion for this particular bit of country. Besides, now that he examined them closer, these were not the tracks of a bull moose at all. 
Hank had explained to him the outline of a bull's hoofs, of a cow's or calf's too, for that matter. He had drawn them clearly on a strip of birch bark. And these were wholly different. They were big, round, ample, and with no pointed outline as of sharp hoofs. He wondered for a moment whether bear tracks were like that. There was no other animal he could think of, for caribou did not come so far south at this season, and even if they did, would leave hoof marks. They were ominous signs, these mysterious writings left in the snow by the unknown creature that had lured a human being away from safety, and when he coupled them in his imagination, with that haunting sound that broke the stillness of the dawn, a momentary dizziness shook his mind, distressing him again beyond belief. He felt the threatening aspect of it all, and stooping down to examine the marks more closely, he caught a faint whiff of that sweet yet pungent odor that made him instantly straighten up again, fighting a sensation almost of nausea. Then his memory played him another evil trick. He suddenly recalled those uncovered feet projecting beyond the edge of the tent, and the body's appearance of having been dragged toward the opening, the man's shrinking from something by the door when he woke later. The details now beat against his trembling mind with concerted attack. They seemed to gather in those deep spaces of the silent forest about him, where the host of trees stood waiting, listening, watching to see what he would do. The woods were closing round him. With the persistence of true pluck, however, Simpson went forward, following the tracks as best he could, smothering these ugly emotions that sought to weaken his will. He blazed innumerable trees as he went, ever fearful of being unable to find the way back, and calling aloud at intervals of a few seconds the name of the guide. The dull tapping of the axe upon the massive trunks, and the unnatural accents of his own voice, became at length sounds that he even dreaded to make, dreaded to hear, for they drew attention without ceasing to his presence and exact whereabouts. And if it were really the case that something was hunting himself down in the same way that he was hunting down another, with a strong effort he crushed the thought out the instant it rose. It was the beginning, he realized, of a bewilderment utterly diabolical in kind that would speedily destroy him. Although the snow was not continuous, lying merely in shallow flurries over the more open spaces, he found no difficulty in following the tracks for the first few miles. They went straight as a ruled line wherever the trees permitted. The stride soon began to increase in length, till it finally assumed proportions that seemed absolutely impossible for any ordinary animal to have made. Like huge flying leaps they became. One of these he measured, and though he knew that stretch of eighteen feet must be somehow wrong, he was at a complete loss to understand why he found no signs on the snow between the extreme points. But what perplexed him even more, making him feel his vision had gone utterly awry, was that Defago's stride increased in the same manner, and finally covered the same incredible distances. It looked as if the great beast had lifted him with it, and carried him across these astonishing intervals. Simpson, who was much longer in the limb, found that he could not compass even half the stretch by taking a running jump. And the sight of these huge tracks, running side by side, 
silent evidence of a dreadful journey in which terror or madness had urged to impossible results, was profoundly moving. It shocked him in the secret depths of his soul. It was the most horrible thing his eyes had ever looked upon. He began to follow them mechanically, absent-mindedly almost, ever peering over his shoulder to see if he, too, were being followed by something with a gigantic tread. And soon it came about that he no longer quite realized what it was they signified, these impressions left upon the snow by something nameless and untamed, always accompanied by the footmarks of the little French-Canadian, his guide, his comrade, the man who had shared his tent a few hours before, chatting, laughing, even singing by his side. Part 5 For a man of his years and inexperience, only a canny Scot, perhaps, grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even that measure of balance that this youth somehow or other did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise two things he presently noticed, while forging pluckily ahead, must have sent him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent, instead of only making his hands close more tightly upon the rifle-stock, while his heart, trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer winging its way to heaven. Both tracks he saw had undergone a change, and this change, so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man, was in some undecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he first noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade, or that the dry snow, drifting like finely ground rice about the edges, cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep, plunging holes of the animal, there now appeared a mysterious, reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than of anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly, this indistinct, fiery tinge that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when, wholly unable to explain or to credit it, he turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they, too, bore similar witness, he noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse, and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in the last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Imperceptibly the change had come about, yet unmistakably. It was hard to see where the change first began. The result, however, was beyond question. Smaller, neater, more cleanly modeled, they formed now an exact and careful duplicate of the larger tracks beside them. The feet that produced them had, therefore, also changed, and something in his mind reared up with loathing and with terror as he saw it. Simpson, for the first time, hesitated, then ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead, the next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him, all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end. On all sides, for a hundred yards and more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there, big trees all of them, 
spruce, cedar, hemlock. There was no underbrush. He stood looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again, and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now apparently left the ground. And it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash about his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, completely unnerving him. He had been secretly dreading all the time that it would come. And come it did. For overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinned and wailing, he heard the crying voice of Defago, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsurpassed. The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening, as it were, with his whole body, then staggered back against the nearest tree for support, disorganized hopelessly in mind and spirit. To him in that moment it seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known, so that his heart emptied itself of all feeling whatsoever as by a sudden draught. "'Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire!' ran in far, beseeching accents of indescribable appeal, this voice of anguish down the sky. Once it called, then silence through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to and fro, searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, and flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller. Behind the screen of memory and emotion, with which experience veils events, he plunged, distracted and half-deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, terror in his eyes and heart and soul, for the panic of the wilderness had called to him in that far voice, the power of untamed distance, the enticement of the desolation that destroys. He knew in that moment all the pains of someone hopelessly and irretrievably lost, suffering the lust and travail of a soul in the final loneliness. A vision of Defago, eternally hunted, driven and pursued across the skyey vastness of those ancient forests, fled like a flame across the dark ruin of his thoughts. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself steady for a moment and think. The cry was not repeated. His own hoarse calling brought no response. The inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems for hours afterwards, for it was late in the afternoon when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and return to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then he went with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears. With difficulty he found his rifle and the homeward trail. The concentration necessary to follow the badly blazed trees and a biting hunger that gnawed helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits, the temporary aberration he had suffered might have been prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually the ballast shifted back again, and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all that, the journey through the gathering dusk 
was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible, and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto, protective of covering merely, had now become menacing, challenging, and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentiment of a nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question, and traveling an unknown trail in the darkness equally impracticable, he sat up the whole of that night, rifle in hand, before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life, but it was successfully accomplished, and with the very first signs of dawn he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence, and to indicate where he had left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way alone, by the lake and forest, might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is to know the passionate loneliness of soul that a man can feel when the wilderness holds him in the hollow of its illimitable hand and laughs. It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. He claims no skill, declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically and without thinking. And this doubtless is the truth. He relied upon the guiding of the unconscious mind, which is instinct. Perhaps, too, some sense of orientation, known to animals and primitive men, may have helped as well, for through all that tangled region he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where Defago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before, with the remark, strike due west across the lake into the sun to find the camp. There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used his compass to the best of his ability, embarking in the frail craft for the last twelve miles of his journey, with a sensation of immense relief that the forest was at last behind him, and fortunately the water was calm. He took his line across the center of the lake, instead of coasting round the shores for another twenty miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back, the light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he might have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated on the sandy cove, and Hank, Punk, and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted and broken specimen of Scotch humanity over the rocks toward a dying fire. Part 6 the sudden entrance of his prosaic uncle into this world of wizardry and horror that had haunted him without interruption now for two days and two nights had the immediate effect of giving to the affair an entirely new aspect. The sound of that crisp, "'Hello, my boy, and what's up now?' and the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand 
introduced another standard of judgment. A revulsion of feeling washed through him. He realized that he had let himself go rather badly. He even felt vaguely ashamed of himself. The native hard-headedness of his race reclaimed him. And this doubtless explains why he found it so hard to tell that group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at, that a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must first have food, and above all, sleep. Dr. Cathcart, observing the lad's condition more shrewdly than his patient knew, gave him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by this student of divinity, it appears that the account he gave to the astonished group omitted sundry vital and important details. He declares that, with his uncle's wholesome matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, he simply had not the courage to mention them. Thus all the search party gathered, it would seem, was that Defago had suffered in the night an acute and inexplicable attack of mania, had imagined himself called by someone or something, and had plunged into the bush after it, without food or rifle, where he must die a horrible and lingering death by cold and starvation unless he could be found and rescued in time. In time, moreover, meant at once. In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge, with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness, without divining that it was drawn out of him, as a matter of fact, by a very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how Defago spoke vaguely of something he called a wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He also admitted the bewildering effect of that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent and acrid like the odor of lions. And by the time they were within an easy hour of fifty island water, he had let slip the further fact. A foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition, as he felt afterwards, that he had heard the banished guide call for help. He omitted the singular phrases used, for he simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they were measured a wholly incredible distance. It seems a question, nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty, what he should reveal, and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent. With the net result that Dr. Cascart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind, influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and invited delusion. While praising his conduct— he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was, by judicious praise, yet more foolish than he was, by minimizing the value of the evidence. Like many another materialist, that is, 
he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge, because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence inadmissible. The spell of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind, that is, possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it worked upon mine when I was your age. The animal that haunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have, sometimes, a very peculiar quality of sound. The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously a defective vision in your own eyes, produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them. But the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement. An excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and let me add, wonderfully controlled by you under the circumstances. For the rest, I am bound to say, you have acted with a splendid courage, for the terror of feeling oneself lost in this wildness is nothing short of awful, and had I been in your place, I don't for a moment believe I could have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The only thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared his nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formulae, made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way I can describe it, he concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel, was the reply, that under the circumstances it did not seem to you even worse. The dry words Simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth. And so at last they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing, the remains of the fire, and the piece of paper pinned to a stake beside it, untouched. The cache, poorly contrived by inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered about the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. "'Well, fellers, he ain't here,' exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion. "'And that's as certain as the coal supply down below. "'But why he's got to by this time is about as uncertain as the trade in crowns and to other place.' The presence of a divinity student was no barrier to his language at such a time, though for the reader's sake it may be severely edited. "'I propose,' he added, "'that we start out at once and hunt for him like hell.' The gloom of Defago's probable fate oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity the moment they saw the familiar signs of recent occupancy, especially the tent with the bed of balsam branches still smoothed and flattened by the pressure of his body seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely, as if his world were somehow at stake, went about explaining particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys. His uncle's method of explaining, explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory, helped, too, to put ice upon his emotions. "'And that's the direction he ran off in,' he said to his two companions, pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the grey dawn. 
Straight down there he ran like a deer in between the birch and the hemlock. Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances. And it was about two miles down there in a straight line, continued the other speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, that I followed his trail to the place where it stopped, dead, "'And where you heard him callin' and caught the stench "'and all that rest of the wicked entertainment?' "'cried Hank with a volubility that betrayed his keen distress. "'And where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions,' "'added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, "'yet not so low that his nephew did not hear it. "'It was early in the afternoon, for they had travelled quickly, "'and there were still a good two hours of daylight left.' Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search, but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blazed marks on the trees, and where possible his footsteps. Meanwhile the best thing he could do was to keep a good fire going and rest. But after something like three hours' search, the darkness already down, the two men returned to camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all signs, and though they had followed the blazed trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, they had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being, or, for that matter, of an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what was best to do, though in reality there was nothing more they could do. They might stay and search for weeks without much chance of success. The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered round the fire for supper, a gloomy and despondent party. The facts indeed were sad enough, for Defago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth and all its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time— even in the experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. Defago, moreover, was predisposed to something of the sort, for he already had a touch of melancholia in his blood, and his fibre was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the line. That was all and he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes, to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased, and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself, and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked, indeed, the end had probably come. On the suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day, from dawn to darkness, to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them. They discussed their plan in great detail. All that men could do, they would do. And meanwhile they talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating, for he admitted that a story ran over all this section of the country to the effect 
that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of Fifty Island Water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason of Defago's disinclination to hunt here. Hank doubtless felt that he had, in a sense, helped his old pal to death by over-persuading him. When an Indian goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed it's always put down that he's seen the Wendigo, and poor old Fago was superstitious down to he very heels. And then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time. He mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only admitted the strange language used. But Defago surely had already told you all these dreadful details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it, and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed. Whereupon Simpson again repeated the facts. Defago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story, and as far as he remembered, had never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course he was telling the truth, and Dr. Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into a blaze the moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least sound in the night about them. A fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of frozen snow from the branches overhead, where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident, lower also in tone. Fear, to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp, and though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this, the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. Hank was the most honest of the group. He said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed, he didn't go farther than was necessary to get it. Part 7 A wall of silence wrapped them in, for the snow, though not thick, was sufficient to deaden any noise, and the frost held things pretty tight besides. No sound but their voices and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard. Only from time to time, something soft as the flutter of a pine moth's wings went past them through the air. No one seemed anxious to go to bed. The hours slipped towards midnight. "'The legend is picturesque enough,' observed the doctor, after one of the longer pauses." "'speaking to break it rather than because he had anything to say. "'For the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, "'which some natures hear to their own destruction.' "'That's about it,' Hank said presently. "'And there's no misunderstanding when you hear it. "'It calls you by name, right enough.' "'Another pause followed. "'Then Dr. Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject "'with a rush that made the others jump. "'The allegory is significant.' he remarked, looking about him into the darkness. For the voice, they say, resembles all the minor sounds of the bush, wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victim hears that, 
He's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes. The feet, you see, for the lust of wandering, and the eyes for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes out at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes, and his feet burn. Dr. Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank to a hushed tone. The wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet, owing to the friction, apparently caused by its tremendous velocity, till they drop off, and new ones form exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement, but it was the pallor on Hank's face that fascinated him most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes had he dared. "'It don't always keep to the ground, neither,' came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, "'for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set him all afire. "'And it'll take great thumping jumps sometimes, "'and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it, "'and then dropping him just as a fish-hawk'll drop a pickerel to kill it before eating. "'And its food, of all the muck in the whole bush, is moss.' "'And he laughed a short, unnatural laugh. <laughs> "'It's a moss-eater, is the wendigo,' he added, "'looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. "'Moss-eater,' he repeated, "'with a string of the most outlandish oaths he could invent. "'But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. "'What these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, "'dreaded more than anything else, was silence. "'They were talking against time. "'They were also talking against darkness.' against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in an enemy's country, against anything, in fact, rather than allow their inmost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune. But these two, the scoffing analytical doctor, and the honest, dogged backwoodsman, each sat trembling in the depths of his being. Thus the hours passed, and thus, with lowered voices and a kind of taut inner resistance of spirit, this little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack, and of a hostage. The fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became insupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones that no one seemed able to break, who first let loose all this pent-up emotion in very unexpected fashion, by springing suddenly to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night. He could not contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it carry even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted its rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. "'That's for Defago,' he said, looking down at the other two with a queer defiant laugh. <laughs> "'For it's my belief—the sandwiched oaths may be omitted—that my old partner's not far from us at this very minute.' There was a vehemence and a recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement, and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart's showed a sudden weakness, a loosening of all his faculties, as it were. Then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he, too, 
though with deliberation born of habitual self-control, got upon his feet and faced the excited guide. For this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, and he meant to stop it in the bud. What might have happened in the next minute or two, one may speculate about, yet never definitely know, for in the instant of profound silence that followed Hank's roaring voice, and as though an answer to it, something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead, at terrific speed, something of necessity very large, for it displaced much air, while down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal, "'Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire!' White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart uttered some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did so, with an instinctive movement of blind terror, towards the protection of the tent, then halting in the act as though frozen. Simpson alone of the three retained his presence of mind a little. His own horror was too deep to allow any immediate reaction. He had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said almost calmly, "'That's exactly the cry I heard.' the very words he used. Then, lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, "'Defago! Defago! Come down here to us! Come down!' And before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or another, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down, and landing with a dreadful thud upon the frozen earth below. The crash and thunder of it was really terrific." "'That's him, so help me God!' came from Hank, in a whispering cry half-choked, his hand going automatically toward the hunting-knife in his belt. "'And he's coming, he's coming!' he added with an irrational laugh of horror, as the sounds of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness towards the circle of light. And while the steps, with their stumbling motion, moved nearer and nearer upon them, the three men stood round that fire, motionless and dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet did nothing. He too was hewn of stone. Little stricken children they seemed. The picture was hideous, and meanwhile, their owner still invisible, the footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real, this measured and pitiless approach. It was accursed. Part 8 Then at length the darkness, having thus laboriously conceived, brought forth a figure. It drew forward into the zone of uncertain light, where fire and shadows mingled, not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly. The same instant it started forward again, with the spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires, and coming up closer to them, full into the glare of the fire, they perceived then that it was a man, and apparently that this man was Defago. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down in that moment over every face, and three pairs of eyes shone through it as though they saw across the frontiers of normal vision 
into the unknown. Defago advanced, his tread faltering and uncertain. He made his way straight up to them as a group first, then turned sharply and peered close into the face of Simpson. The sound of a voice issued from his lips. "'Here I am, Boss Simpson. I heard someone calling me.' It was a faint, dried-up voice, made wheezy and breathless, as by immense exertion. "'I'm having a regular hellfire kind of a trip, I am.' And he laughed, thrusting his head forward into the other's face. But that laugh started the machinery of the group of waxwork figures with the wax-white skins. Hank immediately sprang forward with a stream of oaths so far-fetched that Simpson did not recognize them as English at all, but thought he had lapsed into Indian or some other lingo. He only realized that Hank's presence, thrust thus between them, was welcome, uncommonly welcome. Dr. Cathcart, though more calmly and leisurely, advanced behind him, heavily stumbling. Simpson seems hazy as to what was actually said and done in those next few seconds, for the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage, peering at such close quarters into his own, utterly bewildered his senses at first. He merely stood still. He said nothing. He had not the trained will of the older men that forced them into action, in defiance of all emotional stress. He watched them moving as behind a glass that half destroyed their reality. It was dreamlike, perverted. Yet through the torrent of Hank's meaningless phrases— he remembers hearing his uncle's tone of authority, hard and forced, saying several things about food and warmth, blankets, whiskey, and the rest, and further, that whiffs of that penetrating, unaccustomed odor, vile yet sweetly bewildering, assailed his nostrils during all that followed. It was no less a person than himself, however, less experienced and adroit than the others though he was, who gave instinctive utterance to the sentence that brought a measure of relief into the ghastly situation by expressing the doubt and thought in each one's heart. "'It is you, isn't it, Defago?' he asked under his breath, horror breaking his speech. And at once Cathcart burst out with the loud answer before the other had time to move his lips. "'Of course it is, of course it is, only—' "'Can't you see? He's nearly dead with exhaustion, cold and terror. "'Isn't that enough to change a man beyond all recognition?' "'It was said in order to convince himself as much as to convince the others. "'The overemphasis alone proved that. "'And continually, while he spoke and acted, he held the handkerchief to his nose. "'That odor pervaded the whole camp. "'For the Defago, who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets— drinking hot whiskey and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of sixty is like a derogotype of his early youth and the costume of another generation. Nothing really can describe that ghastly caricature, that parody, masquerading there in the firelight as Defago. From the ruins of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares that the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about into wrong proportions, the skin loose and hanging, as though he had been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hill, that change their expression as they swell, and as they collapse emit a faint and wailing imitation of a voice. 
both face and voice suggested some such abominable resemblance. But Cathcart, long afterwards, seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been an air so rarefied that the weight of atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly asunder and become incoherent. It was Hank, though, all distraught and shaking with a tearing volume of emotion he could neither handle nor understand, who brought things to a head without much ado. He went off to a little distance from the fire, apparently so that the light should not dazzle him too much, and shading his eyes for a moment with both hands, shouted in a loud voice that held anger and affection dreadfully mingled, "'You ain't Defago. You ain't Defago at all. I don't give a damn, but that ain't you, my old pal of twenty years.' He glared upon the huddled figure as though he would destroy him with his eyes. "'And if it is, I'll swab the floor of hell with a water-cotton wool and a toothpick. So help me the good God,' he added with a violent fling of horror and disgust. It was impossible to silence him. He stood there, shouting like one possessed, horrible to see, horrible to hear, because it was the truth. He repeated himself in fifty different ways, each more outlandish than the last. The woods rang with echoes. At one time it looked as if he meant to fling himself upon the intruder, for his hand continually jerked towards the long hunting-knife in his belt. But in the end he did nothing, and the whole tempest completed itself very shortly with tears. Hank's voice suddenly broke. He collapsed on the ground, and Cathcart, somehow or other, persuaded him at last to go into the tent and lie quiet. The remainder of the affair, indeed, was witnessed by him from behind the canvas, his white and terrified face peeping through the crack of the tent door flap. Then Dr. Cathcart, closely followed by his nephew, who so far had kept his courage better than all of them, went up with a determined air and stood opposite to the figure of Defago, huddled over the fire. He looked him squarely in the face and spoke. At first his voice was firm. Defago, tell us what's happened. Just a little, so that we can know how best to help you. He asked in a tone of authority almost of command. And at that point it was command. At once afterwards, however, it changed in quality for the figure turned up to him a face so piteous, so terrible, and so little like humanity that the doctor shrank back from him, as from something spiritually unclean. Simpson, watching close behind him, says he got the impression of a mask that was on the verge of dropping off, and that underneath they would discover something black and diabolical, revealed in utter nakedness. "'Out with it, man! Out with it!' Cathcart cried, terror running neck and neck with entreaty. None of us can stay in this much longer. It was the cry of instinct over reason. And then Defago, smiling whitely, answered in that thin and fading voice that already seemed passing over into a sound of quite another character. I seen that great Wendigo thing, he whispered, sniffing the air about him exactly like an animal. I been with it, too. Whether the poor devil would have said more, or whether Dr. Cathcart would have continued the impossible cross-examination, cannot be known, for at that moment the voice of Hank was heard yelling at the top of his voice from behind the canvas that concealed all but his terrified eyes. Such a howling was never heard. 
His feet! Oh, God, his feet! Look at his great changed feet! Defago, shuffling where he sat, had moved in such a way that for the first time his legs were in full light and his feet were visible. Yet Simpson had no time himself to see properly what Hank had seen, and Hank has never seen fit to tell. That same instant, with a leap like that of a frightened tiger, Cathcart was upon him, bundling the folds of blanket about his legs with such speed that the young student caught little more than a passing glimpse of something dark and oddly massed where moccasined feet ought to have been, and saw even that but with uncertain vision. Then before the doctor had time to do more, or Simpson time to even think a question, much less ask it, Defago was standing upright in front of them, balancing with pain and difficulty, and upon his shapeless and twisted visage an expression so dark and so malicious that it was, in the true sense, monstrous. "'Now you've seen it, too!' he wheezed. "'You've seen my fiery burning feet, and now, that is, unless you can save me and prevent, it's about time for—' His piteous and beseeching voice was interrupted by a sound that was like the roar of wind coming across the lake. The trees overhead shook their tangled branches. The blazing fire bent its flame as before a blast, and something swept with a terrific, rushing noise about the little camp, and seemed to surround it entirely in a single moment of time. Defago shook the clinging blankets from his body, turned towards the woods behind, and with the same stumbling motion that had brought him, was gone. Gone before anyone could move muscle to prevent him. Gone with an amazing blundering swiftness that left no time to act. The darkness positively swallowed him, and less than a dozen seconds later, above the roar of the swaying trees and the shout of the sudden wind, all three men, watching and listening with stricken hearts, heard a cry that seemed to drop down upon them from a great height of sky and distance. Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire! Then died away into untold space and silence. Dr. Cathcart, suddenly master of himself, and therefore of the others, was just able to seize Hank violently by the arm as he tried to dash headlong into the bush. "'But I want to know, you,' shrieked the guide. "'I want to see. That ain't him at all, but some devil that's shunted into his place.' Somehow or other, he admits he never quite knew how he accomplished it. He managed to keep him in the tent and pacify him. The doctor apparently had reached the stage where reaction had set in and allowed his own innate force to conquer. Certainly he managed Hank admirably. It was his nephew, however, hitherto so wonderfully controlled, who gave him most cause for anxiety, for the cumulative strain had now produced a condition of lachrymose hysteria, which made it necessary to isolate him upon a bed of boughs and blankets as far removed from Hank as was possible under the circumstances." And there he lay, as the watches of that haunted night passed over the lonely camp, crying startled sentences and fragments of sentences into the folds of his blanket. A quantity of gibberish about speed and height and fire mingled oddly with biblical memories of the classroom. People with broken faces all on fire are coming at a most awful, awful pace towards the camp. He would moan one minute, and the next would sit up and stare into the woods, intently listening, and whisper, how terrible in the wilderness are, are the feet of them that. 
until his uncle came across to change the direction of his thoughts and comfort him. The hysteria, fortunately, proved but temporary. Sleep cured him, just as it cured Hank. Till the first signs of daylight came, soon after five o'clock, Dr. Cathcart kept his vigil. His face was the color of chalk, and there were strange flushes beneath the eyes. An appalling terror of the soul battled with his will all through those silent hours. These were some of the outer signs. At dawn he lit the fire himself, made breakfast, and woke the others, and by seven they were well on their way back to the home camp. Three perplexed and afflicted men, but each in his own way, having reduced his inner turmoil to a condition of more or less systematized order again. Part 9 They talked little, and then only of the most wholesome and common things, for their minds were charged with painful thoughts that clamored for explanation, though no one dared refer to them. Hank, being nearest to primitive conditions, was the first to find himself, for he was also less complex. In Dr. Cathcart, civilization championed his forces against an attack singular enough. To this day, perhaps, he is not quite sure of certain things. Anyhow, he took longer to find himself. Simpson, the student of divinity, it was who arranged his conclusions probably with the best, though not most scientific, appearance of order. Out there, in the heart of unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive, something that had survived somehow the advance of humanity, had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature. He envisaged it rather as a glimpse into prehistoric ages, when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day he thinks of what he termed years later in a sermon, savage and formidable potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. Hence his uncle never discussed the matter in detail, for the barrier between the two types of mind made it difficult. Only once, years later, something led them to the frontier of the subject, of a single detail of the subject, rather. "'Can't you even tell me what—they were like?' he asked, and the reply, though conceived in wisdom, was not encouraging. "'It is far better you should not try to know or to find out.' "'Well, that odor,' persisted the nephew. "'What do you make of that?' "'Dr. Cathcart looked at him and raised his eyebrows. "'Odors,' he replied, "'are not so easy as sounds and sights of telepathic communication. "'I make as much or as little, probably, as you do yourself.' "'He was not quite so glib as usual with his explanations. "'That was all. "'At the fall of day, cold, exhausted, famished,' The party came to the end of the long portage and dragged themselves into a camp that at first glimpse seemed empty. Fire there was none, and no punk came forward to welcome them. The emotional capacity of all three was too overspent to recognize either surprise or annoyance, but the cry of spontaneous affection that burst from the lips of Hank as he rushed ahead of them towards the fireplace came probably as a warning 
that the end of the amazing affair was not quite yet. And both Cathcart and his nephew confessed afterwards that when they saw him kneel down in his excitement and embrace something that reclined, gently moving, beside the extinguished ashes, they felt in their very bones that this something would prove to be Defago, the true Defago, returned. And so indeed it was. It is soon told, exhausted to the point of emaciation, the French-Canadian, what was left of him, that is, fumbled among the ashes, trying to make a fire. His body crouched there, the weak fingers obeying feebly the instinctive habit of a lifetime with twigs and matches. But there was no longer any mind to direct the simple operation. The mind had fled beyond recall, and with it too had fled memory. Not only recent events, but all previous life was a blank. This time it was the real man, though incredibly and horribly shrunken. On his face was no expression of any kind whatever, fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him, or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden. The something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. In some ways it was more terribly moving than anything they had yet seen. That idiot smile as he drew wads of coarse moss from his swollen cheeks and told them that he was a damned moss-eater. The continued vomiting of even the simplest food, and worst of all, the piteous and childish voice of complaint in which he told them that his feet pained him, burn like fire, which was natural enough when Dr. Cathcart examined them and found that both were dreadfully frozen. Beneath the eyes they were faint indications of recent bleeding. The details of how he survived the prolonged exposure, of where he had been, or of how he had covered the great distance from one camp to the other, including an immense detour of the lake on foot, since he had no canoe, all this remains unknown. His memory had vanished completely, and before the end of the winter, whose beginning witnessed this strange occurrence, Defago, bereft of mind, memory, and soul, had gone with it. He lingered only a few weeks. And what Punk was able to contribute to the story throws no further light upon it. He was cleaning fish by the lake shore about five o'clock in the evening, an hour, that is, before the search party returned, when he saw this shadow of the guide picking its way weakly into camp. In advance of him, he declares, came the faint whiff of a certain singular odor. That same instant, old Punk started for home. He covered the entire journey of three days as only Indian blood could have covered it. The terror of a whole race drove him. He knew what it all meant. Defago had seen the Wendigo. End of the Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. And I'm Brian Alexander. We're going to talk about The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. This was first published in The Lost Valley and Other Stories, uh, according to ISFDB. And it was republished in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, June 1944. That's where I found it and read it with great Matt Fox illustrations. Um, Brian, you wanted to be on this show, so I, I'm assuming you had read it before. 
Marissa oh, yeah. just moved to Vermont, so she's hanging out in canoes and doing portage and uh, <laughs> fighting off Wendigos. Uh, Paul? I'm, I'm chasing the Wendigos. I, I, I'd only <laughs> heard of the story, but, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about portages. I mean, I mean, yes, this, ca- this is set in Canada, but it feels like the BWCA in northern Minnesota, so it's terrain that feels mm. familiar. Mm. Mm. Now, you, you mispronounced it just as our narrator did. It's portage, not portage. Um, um, it's French. The name of the, the, the name of the the name of the monument is Grand Portage National Monument. Of course it is, but that's because it's you know American, <laughs> right? They, they it's what are they called? Defago is Defago. <laughs> you have to do it with a French Canadian accent, otherwise it doesn't work. Uh, portage. This is when you. Uh, it's almost like she didn't. The narrator didn't know how to pronounce it because she doesn't know what it is. It's when you get your canoe out of the lake or the river and you put it on your shoulders with somebody else, hopefully, and then you walk over land to the next river or lake. Yeah, huh. I, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I mean, yeah. The voy- the voyagers are and hence voyagers. voyagers <laughs> Hence, hence Voyager's National Park in northern Minnesota <laughs> were famous for this and tried to find routes to uh, be able to continue the uh, continue water journeys across the uh, North America. And in a sense, Lewis and Clark were kind of looking for that sort of thing for the for America when they went on their expedition west to try to find a good portage between the rivers that flow to the Mississippi <laughs> and the rivers that flow to the Pacific. Yeah. They didn't find one. It doesn't exist. But they looked. That was their Northwest Passage moment over land. It was, yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I want to say that I never noticed before how non-Wendigo-like this Wendigo is. Um, I guess I never thought about it. I, But um, I did read a book recently that I do recommend highly. Um, it's called The Weird and the Eerie. It's by Mark Fisher. Um, who also wrote a great book called uh, Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? Um, and then he killed himself immediately after publishing either one of the other books, um, or even actually even before. And I guess the answer is no, there's no alternative. Um, but Wait, in, Mark Fisher did? Yeah. Hung oh, himself. that sucks. It, it does I'm suck. Like half, great book. I'm halfway through that book right now. It's the weird really, and the eerie? really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, here's the question for you. Since you're halfway through, you should know the answer, hopefully, because I think I know the answer. Is this is this story weird or is it eerie? Huh. It has both, uh, as most things do. But I think it's I think way. It's weird. Oh, I think it's way more eerie than it is weird. Do you know why I'm saying weird? Because the thing that kept on jumping out at me in this is that. Um, that fascination and the pull into yep. the horror as well, which he mm-hmm. talks about as a weird feature. It is but a wait, weird why, feature. Why? Why is it more airy to you? Uh, I'm not. I'm not up to the airy part yet. By the way, oh okay. Read, um, the first half is the weird, and I've just started the airy. I've just. I, I've. I've. It's easy to conflate the two, and they are absolutely synonyms, right? That was a weird movie. Uh, that was an eerie scene, right? The, they're synonyms, but they're not identical. Unusual and weird go together more and strange than does eerie. Eerie is sort of on its own orbit out by itself. And what is eerie is absence, whereas 
weird as presents. So here's a weird uh, object, and I hand it to you and I put it in your hand, right? Um, uh, if you hear something in the next room, like, oh, <laughs> that's weird. So you go in there and find out what's causing it, and there's nothing there. That's eerie. So eerie is absence, right? Mm. And so a lot of this story, the way it's told, is uh, we see it not from Defago's point of view, but from people near Defago's point of view. And they are witnessing something, but it's witnessing it with their nose, witnessing it with their ears, not witnessing it with they're putting it in their hand or seeing it clearly. You follow? Yeah, that's really cool. It is super cool. And I, I've um, never thought about this idea at all as, as separating them until reading that Mark Fisher book. Yeah, that's literally the page I'm up to, page 61. And I had highlighted that exact line. Like, I just started the airy chapter and it, <laughs> I just highlighted. Yeah, it's a failure of absence, of absence or a failure of presence. Mm. Yeah, so uh, you could have it the other way where um, somebody's talking but you can't hear them, right? You can see that their mouth is moving and you should be able to hear them, but you can't. Yeah. That'd be eerie in the same way. But it's the absence of the, of the voice that is the issue, right? Whereas yeah. what, they're, what they're saying is strange, then that's not eerie, unless they tell you a story, which a lot of this is nested, right? So we've yeah. got the, I think it's five guys at the beginning, then... Uh, they separate. We follow two or is it two or three of them? And then they come back, right? And one gets, it's like further. Two of them, not three of them. Yeah. And then, uh, but one of them is completely off by himself or with a Wendigo. And then we never see it really from his point of view, right? And then it comes back at the end. Um, so that. No, the, yeah, the mystery is what is actually happening happening to him when he's with the wendigos like i i today today listeners as we record this it is easter sunday so i so when we we're seeing the footprints i kept thinking of like oh when i started one footsteps i was carrying you i kept thinking of that <laughs> the wendigos that, that jesus thing. Well, well, jesus with his feet of fire <laughs> well it is it's what the wendigo is and isn't is something we can dig into but the whole thing of the of the tracks becoming like each other was that goes from eerie to weird yeah that i was just gonna say that that's it that feels really weird that kind of like transformation stuff that's happening and like it's just so curious like you're mm -hmm. like what what is this mystery it has the same power as um the willows i think um yeah. it, this is a lot more racist <laughs> which I, di I didn't remember at all um, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, is it the characters who are racist or is it Algernon Blackwood who's racist or is it both? Um, and I, I'm not sure, like, I, I didn't expect it to be racist because I'd read it before and it doesn't really f factor into the story very much. Right. Yeah. That's why I'd put it onto the author a bit more because it's not really, it's not discussing it or talking about it in the story. It's just kind of casually thrown in there. It's interesting because it, I, I depending on what you think the relationship is to to the real you know mythological wendigo rather than the story 
Wendigo. Um, there are ideas about how the land is empty, right? Um, and there are places where no one's ever been. And this is just like crazy falls, right? <laughs> there are natives all up in these areas, right? And yes, there are areas that are less populated. Um, also, also, I, w- I want to bring this point in. Um, the the whole idea that this is complete wilderness, never touched by man or look, is kind of a misreading of Native Americans having an enormous effect on the North American landscape before Columbus. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, 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 these forests were had controlled burns, managed, mm-hmm. changed by mm-hmm. Native Americans for thousands of years. So Algernon gets it really wrong. It's like, no, this is not untrammeled wilderness that no one's ever touched. That's, that's just, that's just his benighted lack of uh, understanding of, mm-hmm. A pre-Columbian, pre-Columbian civilization. He does the same yeah. thing in the Willows, right? He says there's this part of uh, Austria that is just completely untouched. Nobody goes there, right? Or if they have, it hasn't been since uh, the Roman era, right? So I don't think that it's all um, ignorance. I think part of it is just building it up, right? Making it uh, interesting and hyper-maximalized. But it definitely is disconnected from uh, Wendigo psychosis as the phenomenon um, and also the mythological explanations for what happens when one becomes Wendigo. Oh, can you explain that stuff? Because I was just uh, looking that up before the podcast and I didn't have time to read everything. So um, there is a uh, podcast. um, I went searching for other people's. Uh, stuff on it and there's a good podcast called weird studies um oh yeah i listened to that yeah it's uh, two guys uh one's phil ford and the other's jf martell i think they're out of ontario um and they talked a bit about uh it but one of the one of the things they talked about was um an incident that happened i want to say in 2018 but maybe it was longer longer ago yeah here it is killing of tim mclean oh 2008 Okay, so what happened was there's this guy. Um, he's on the bus uh, going from uh, one part of, uh, get this, he's um, uh, in Portage la Prairie in Manitoba, and he's going to um, <laughs> another Manitoba city. So this is right, uh, this is in the right area. It's a little bit uh, west of where the story has taken place. But um, I'll just read what happened. On July 30th, 2008, Tim McLean, a carnival barker, which is crazy, was returning home to Winnipeg after working at a fair in Edmonton. He departed Edmonton on board Greyhound bus 1170 to Winnipeg via Yellowhead Highway through Saskatchewan. He sat at the rear, one row ahead of the toilet. The bus departed from a stop at Erickson with a new passenger, Vince Waiguang. Uh, he's Chinese, uh, Wai Guang Li, he's, uh, Chinese. Um, Li, described as a tall man in his forties with a shaved head and sunglasses, originally sat at the front of the bus, but moved to sit next to McLean following a scheduled rest stop. M- McLean barely, quote unquote, barely acknowledged Li, then fell asleep against the window pane, headphones covering his ears. This is a true story, by the way. It sounds like it's one of those creepy pastas. Um, 
According to witnesses, McLean was sleeping with his headphones on when the man next to him suddenly produced a large knife and began stabbing him in the neck and chest. After the attack began, the bus driver pulled over to the side of the road, and he and the, all the other passengers fled the vehicle. The driver and two other men made an attempt to rescue McLean, but were chased away by Lee, who slashed at them uh, from behind the locked bus doors. Lee ultimately decapitated McLean and displayed his severed head to those standing outside the bus, then returned to McLean's body and began severing other parts and consuming some of McLean's flesh. So, uh, uh, my understanding of what happened, and I have not followed this story that closely, is, uh, you know, he went insane <laughs> um, and was tried and sentenced to um, go to a, a mental hospital where they would try and fix him. Um, and I believe they did. Yeah. So he pled uh, non, uh, non-compass mentis or uh, lacked mens rea, right? Um, and I believe he has been, di- yeah, he's been discharged. Absolutely discharged, no legal uh, obligations. Uh, so wow. one, how is this connected? So apparently one person had written a story not that long earlier, earlier in uh, one of the relevant places about Wendigos and Wendigo psychosis. And he's worried that he may have caused this by giving it as a possibility, just speaking the word Wendigo in the same way that it like triggered this that, guy. That is very magical thinking though. Is that, that you can, you can. Indeed. Wait. Indeed. But we do know who, that people do things that they... the writer of the article was plagued with guilt over the idea that he may have triggered this. The thing is, is when you do write stuff and you put it out there in the world, People react to it and do most people just, you know, put a, a yellow and blue flag in their bio. They don't actually go to Ukraine, right? When they see something in the news, but other people do that, right? There are people who went to Ukraine to join the fight. And the reason they do that is because of something in the news. So uh, in the same way that um, Stephen King uh, banned one of his own books because he was worried about it being tied to school shootings, which it kind of was. You can see that as kind of like a, uh, a triggering Cop- event. Yeah. Copy, copycat inspiration, that sort of. Yeah. Or like, uh, this is what I've been thinking about. This is crystallizing something within me. And clearly the guy was crazy, oh. right? So how do you explain? Yeah. There's a big difference between like people. I think they're acting like on their own, like righteous morals or whatever. But this, I clearly like these curves. You're breaking up quite a bit. Hang on a second. Can you guys hear her clearly? No. Uh, Same breaking up. Yeah. Okay. Um, We'll just give you a second here. I'm pretty sure it's not my end here. Yeah, the Wendigo is interfering with our podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, you're saying there. I think you were saying something uh, basically that uh, people who yeah, uh, just try try and say it again. I don't want to try and summarize what you're saying because I didn't hear it that well. Not great. You guys carry on. 
Oh, no, damn. same problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so uh, basically, what I would say is, is, yeah, we, we okay. So basically, what I, I I'm suggesting is that the the people who lived in this area, uh, you know, of Canada, of Manitoba, of eastern, uh, uh western Ontario. She's in Vermont. Um, those people would have to have an explanation for strange behavior, right? So Bersark is the explanation the Norse would call it. He went Bersark, right? Berserk is the word we use. Um, he went crazy. He just ran into battle without his clothes on um, and was a fearsome fighter. Why would he do that? He was taken by the spirit, right? Now, that is not really what happens in this story, but the idea of Wendigo psychosis as a modern projection back onto this myth of the Wendigo is an interesting one because uh, it's tied to the idea of, of it not being when it was extreme starvation, but rather in times of abundance that people would go Wendigo. Mm. And I'm also a little familiar with the Skinwalker thing, which I think is uh, probably what we remember from the movie Ravenous, mm-hmm. which is kind of a black comedy, um, but also uh, fairly interesting as a explanation for behavior. Oh, that's a great movie. Um, Terrific but movie. I, I've, I've, I've heard the Wendigo, uh, that kind of social explanation both ways. I've heard it used both in terms of plenitude as well as in terms of starvation. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it more starvation myself. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's some talk in the, in the climate change community that, uh, the Wendigo is a symptom of, um, of, uh, society that's sick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, which is, you know, uh, you're just going about your business and then suddenly your head's being cut off on the bus. What's the explanation? A guy was like, you know, he went on to that bus with that knife. Presumably he had some logic going on in his head. I, I agree with Marissa's idea that there is a difference between people being triggered by real information about things happening in the world and going off to fight, uh, for the good guys as opposed to, uh, you know, just mentioning something. Um, and then having people, you know, be triggered. But I'm thinking about the writer, right? If you had just written that story about what happens during Wendigo psychosis, or if you're Stephen King and you just wrote a book about school shootings, then you find out the kids who have been doing it have this, have your book in their locker or at home, you might feel a kind of sense of guilt and a kind of sense of, fear and it's not wholly rational it's much more like uh uh mythological you know mm-hmm. what 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 fate did i what what stars did i change to change reality when it, whenever you can marissa if you can reset your modem or whatever come on back so uh i thought that that was an interesting um an interesting take on what the difference is, because that's not what happens in this story. Um, those guys on that other podcast, 
they uh one of them pointed out that this is a lot more like a uh a visit to fairyland the fago gets taken away by the fairies and changed transformed into like a uh changeling a changeling right well that, 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 because because i had because i had tweet i had tweeted a dm to you Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. And that kind ah, of stuff tells okay. like when That's, he goes back. Makes more sense I used to now. I'm going with that. It's like, right. Because okay. if they come back, I don't quite think he's quite who he was. He isn't. At least if we follow, if we follow all the, sto- all, all what the story happens as literally true, he mm. has been changed by the Wendigo and is not for, not for the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just no, like go, go to Fairyland. You don't come back out, uh, Cool. Yeah, um, my favorite one of those, of course, is uh, uh, La Belle dans Sans Merci, which is mm-hmm. just... As the enthrall, yes. Yeah, and, you know, there's a... I get the sense that the the hill, that he's lying on the hillside, it's made of the corpses of many, many men who have been taken to fairyland and been fed these bitter... Uh, no, these... Uh, what is a uh, relish sweet and b- a bitter dew or whatever, right? There's magical food. And then he's lying on the cold hillside because he's dying. And that's why there's a hill there, right? It's just a big pile of people who've been, who've been taken in. Um, that is a, an essentially cool idea, but it doesn't appear to match the Wendigo of, of the, uh, of the natives, right? He seems to be uninterested in, he heard about the Wendigo. He heard a little bit about it, but this feat of fire, uh, that is not in, in the, in the uh, canon, as far as I'm uh, knowledgeable. But it does fit. I think a good reading is it does fit the idea of his feet are frozen. His feet are um, frostbitten, right? And the fact that they're worn away, in a certain sense, mm. Um, mm. It, it fits the environment. So, you know, he did, uh, that is to say, Algernon Blackwood did come to Canada and he lived here and he, uh, he had experiences in canoes, right? I've read other stories by him set in Canada and they do engage with the landscape and they do engage with natives, but not on their terms. It's much more on his, his terms, like, he has a story, uh, a ghost story, um, that's cool. It's a cool ghost story, um, about a, uh, it's called a haunted island. And it's about a guy who goes to an island and he's the only person in a house. Um, and he f- sees something out on the lake and he sees a, hears something coming into the house. And it turns out it's like a ghost of an Indian. Um, who came into the house and murdered somebody. Um, and he goes around the aisle three times and he's like lying in the bed when the Indian's standing over him with the hatchet. Um, but there's also a ghost in the bed, right? That he's sort of seeing that which has happened or that which will happen. He's got another one that's similar. It's called Accessory Before the Fact, where it's a premonition sort of story. But he's not really, there's no reason it, it is engaging with native spirituality or na- native legend. It's just set in Canada and he's bringing his own stuff to it. So he took the word Wendigo, um, and then did his own thing with it, but he is 
his descriptions of the landscape, which are equally evocative in, in this as in the willows are, you know, I, Paul, you were saying it's, it's like the places where you are, right? Is, yeah, I mean, a few hours north, but yeah, definitely. And Vermont's a, similar, and it's got this yeah. listening forest. I love that term that comes up again and again. Can you guys? Yeah, we can hear you, and you're sounding yes. good. Can you guys hear me now? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yes. Cool. Beautiful. Um, I was listening to it while walking around in the forest out here with the, like, the wind, like, right. playing the trees and looking at perfect. all the, like, spooky fallen trees, and it was so perfect. Yeah, it was great. Perfect. It, yeah, I, I saw that photo you did of you were in a boat or was it a canoe uh, on the lake? Oh yeah, it's a boat. It's a yeah, it's a little outside our house, and there was an old boat that was left here on this property, so we pulled that out and went for a float. Something about being in the woods, you know. He he's captured that for mm-hmm. sure, but is it? Is it authentic to any native experience? I don't think so. I think well, it's, he's so, doing his own thing. I mean, on the one hand, you can talk about this as a kind of colonialist work. Then mm-hmm. it's you know, it's it's someone who's coming from uh, Britain at the height of Britain's uh, imperial power and is going to one of the colonial fringes. I mean, not just Canada as a whole, but also um, north of Canada, you know, away from the um, populated strip along the U.S. border. Um, And then that brings in all kinds of colonial attachments and issues. But you can also view this as uh, Blackwood, who always did uh, nature, um, Mm -hmm. always fascinated with nature. Um, And like this, he's a lot like Machen, as a great contemporary, and, um, and that that's you know, this, this is this is a powerful, powerful piece of of natural isolation. I mean, I mean, part of the I think dramatic power of the story is the first, more than the first half, really, is just the successive isolation, of uh, just moving further and further away um, into a more and more depopulated, uh, more and more alienated space. And it's lovely for the first at least the, at least the first third. It's just described in gorgeous terms. It sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just slowly, you know, makes it bit by bit, a little more unsettling. Um, and, and so I, I think that's, that's more, um, more general, more generally applicable. Um, the, the feet of fire, bit, I think, well, my own personal theory is the reason why no one else uses that is because they all hear the Johnny Cash song. I think you my, DM me something of that effect. My burning feet of fire. Do, do you think it's connected? <laughs> I know it's connected. Oh, really? Wow. I'm interested yeah. now. Yeah. I, I want to read no. uh, uh, this. Op- uh, it's it's full of great, great sentences. But this is um, this is. Uh, about five paragraphs into the first chapter. The party round the blazing fire that night were dis- despondent for a week. Uh, despondent for a week had passed without a single sign of recent moose discovering itself. Uh, I love that the moose is discovering itself. Right? Uh, that's no, no. That's a that's a uh, uh, an archaic. Oh, I piece. know, but okay. he's doing it on purpose, right? He's he does this uh, these word yeah. word turns that are so cool. Defago had sung his song and plunged into a story. But Hank, in bad humor, reminded him so often that he kept mussing up the fact so that it was most all nothing but a petered-out lie. Very That the Frenchman had finally subsided into a sulky silence, 
which nothing seemed likely to break. Dr. Dr. Cathcart and his nephew were fairly done after an exhausting day. Punk was washing up the dishes, grunting to himself under the lean-to of branches where he kept, he later also slept. No one troubled to stir the slowly dying fire. Overhead, the stars were brilliant in a sky quite wintry, and there was so little wind that the ice was already forming stealthily along the shores of the still lake behind them. The silence of the vast listening forest stole forward and enveloped them. That sentence, yeah. dude, yeah. the silence of the vast listening forest stole forward and enveloped them. It is very evocative. I was thinking, oh my god, this is this is northern Minnesota. But also listen, listen to all the all the creepy bits in those few sentences. Oh yeah. Um, so so it, not just the fire is going down, but no one troubled to stir, it, and it's slowly dying. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the ice is forming stealthily behind them, so it's all sneaking up. Mm-hmm. And then it's the silence that is stealing forward, not just expanding, but envelops them. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful, wonderful set of sentences. It, it, and it, it builds. It, it is. Um, yeah. It, it's. Yeah. This is why Lovecraft likes this, right? Is because it's. It is about mood. It's not about. Um, you know, I'm going to convey some complex ideas to you. I'm going to comp- convey some complex moods to you. Um, first of all, there's the awe of nature. There's the companionable silences, the friendly back and forth. There's the structural relationship of the characters, um, and they're, you know, they're being offended or they're being whatever. This is all like little, little nothing for the outer story, which is we don't really know what happened. Who's this narrator, right? And how is this all engaging? Because like Punk is the least quiet. He's the least communicative character in the story, right? But he's also the one who's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hanging around for this. It's a smart uh, character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then, you know, a, a minute or two later, the wind comes and stirs up that fire, makes it hot again. Right. It's like, well, geez, what it, it's, it's like that, uh, Bulwer Lytton, you know, dark and stormy night, except it's instead of reflecting the, uh, the characters relationships with, their reality, the that is the weather. The weather is affecting the people the other way around. It's like he's re- inverted it, right? So the landscape turns these people mm-hmm. into the things that they become. And their re- reaction to it as guides and uh, hunters and, and servants is all like uh, they are caught up in a spell rather than the reality reflects their inner turmoil. It's a it's an inversion of this uh, sort of fake realism, I guess that is still popular. I don't know. When I when I'm telling students, it reminded me of uh, Annihilation. Oh yeah, Mm. definitely. It reminded me of Mm. yeah, like the way the the of the way that the people kind of like hiding what we're really seeing, they like behind masks. Yep. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes for this is uh, it, what I think might be the uh, climax. Um, and this is one which has the beautiful, beautiful illustration. Um, and uh, Matt uh, Fox is. Um, yeah. 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 But it's, I just want to I just want to just 
bringing this up. It's it's a uh, um, so um, one of uh, Hank says, you know, Defego, please come down, please come down, and then you get this great, great stage setting and it really feels like it's like stage directions right you know uh hang says you know he's coming he's coming with an irrational laugh of horror this is a nice way of putting it as the sounds of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible we're pushing through the blackness towards the circle of light so it's almost a magical thing right? and mm-hmm. while the steps so their stumbling motion moved nearer and nearer upon them the three men stood around that fire motionless and dumb so he draws this out. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action. It did nothing. He too was hewn of stone. Like stricken children, they seemed. And just by the way, that's one of the things I love about. Uh, that's that's a very powerful line of, of horror is to, is to just, just sap somebody and, and rewind them from being adults. This shows up in uh, Blair Witch Project. Right? Mm. Where at the mm. end of it, the, the, the survivors uh, are like little kids. Um, the picture was hideous. To the of the yeah. And meanwhile, their owner is still invisible. The footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real. This measured and pitiless approach. It was accursed. I mean, you could almost end the story here. This mm. tremendous, tremendous buildup. And there's also this, again, I haven't read Fisher's book. I really want to now. But, yeah, it's good. Uh, this bit, too prolonged to be quite real. Uh, it reminds me, and this is a thing that you see throughout Gothic horror, that where Ben's reality, like uh, there's this great bit early in Dracula when they're in um, – uh, visiting the town and it's described only in terms of appearances and in terms of postcards. Um, it, you know, just stre- this sets you up for the distortion for Defego's body that's going to come up. And then, and then Blackwood does this brutal thing where he just makes us a chapter break. And then at length, the darkness having less laboriously conceived, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a terrible pun in terms of birth, right? Brought forth a figure. So not just a human, but a figure, which could be anything. It drew forward to the zone of uncertain light where fire and shadows mingled not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly. Ah, you know, this thing is mm-hmm. The same instant, it started forward again with a spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires. So, you know, which is a great, like, again, theater. It's, you know, that's something that's coming out across some um, being directed by the flies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or a machine. And coming up to them, full to the glare of the fire, they perceive then that it was a man. And apparently this man was, dash, the fake old. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down on that moment over every face. What a great, you know, like, what is a skin of horror? Right? Like a rhyme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then three and three pairs of eyes shone through it as they saw across the frontiers of normal vision into the unknown. So I mean, it's the this whole thing just turns all these people into objects, into you know robots and things. I mean, now this last sentence where their friends are there, they're looking at him, they're worried about him, and now they are just eyes looking through a skin of horror at this thing. I mean, it's it's an incredibly well written part. Do you know? Do you know his? Say again, Marissa. Do you think it's the Wendigo though? Like I kind of got the impression it was the Wendigo composite with bodies. I thought so at first, but then we get this lovely bit uh, about his feet, um, where uh, which we don't actually see, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
where you know, his friend is like, you're not, you're not him. Um, and then, uh, but then it's his, you know, he's just moving his feet along and then, um, and the, there's something horrible with his feet and we just get to see it being moved around. We don't get to see actually what happened. Um, you know, it, what's the description here? Something dark and oddly masked where moccasin feet ought to have been. And he saw even that with the uncertain vision. Um, and then they just covered this with a blanket. Um, and, so as know, to now, hide it. So as to yeah. hide it. But also maybe to warm up those frozen feet. But no, it's really because you can't look at it. <laughs> and then it gets yanked away. I mean, it, it just felt like now it's a horror cliche. Like uh, I forget what was the first movie to do this. Probably Wreck. Um, where you know you see someone flat on the floor and then they get yanked away from you. Mm. Um and uh, it's I see this like every other. You're right. Horror it is more. It's commonly used now, isn't it? Yeah. But and, so, how does that make him make it not the wind? Well, I think he is. I think he. So uh, I, I want to mention his name. <laughs> so Defago. It sounds French, right? But it's not a normal French name. No. <laughs> um, Fago is faggot in English, and a faggot is a bundle of sticks. Uh-huh. And this is to go mm-hmm. with the idea of of this is fire. What, well, yeah, absolutely. But also, it's it's what the uh, fairies do. They replace your baby with something that isn't your baby. And and one of the things they could replace it with is like a like in the Blair Witch. I think it's the Blair Witch where they have these like oh no, maybe it's the corn dollies. Um, you know. Like there's a was it in uh, that HBO uh, uh, ripoff of <laughs> oh, it's, uh, true crime or what's it called true murder I don't know true uh, detective true detective. detective yeah and they have these um, these corn dollies uh, I think that's the one anyways um, but they have the stick dollies in in Blair Witch Project right these mm-hmm. stick things mm-hmm. um, they are like. Uh, one of the things that could happen is, is your baby is taken away and you're just replaced with a baby that looks like your baby but cries, right? Um, or it could be mm-hmm. replaced, you say, that's not my baby, that baby has Down syndrome, I must kill it because it's a fairy, right? Now, the, the, uh, that's the theoretical explanation. But one thing that they can also do is they place a a bundle of sticks that looks like the size of a baby in your baby's bed and take your baby away and you think well mm-hmm. who's going to be fooled by that no, well but it's, a, but it's a magical substitution it's basically indeed we're, we're replacing one with the other it's not that you're fooled it's basically balancing out the magical requirements of the uh, of the spell so it, it, it's but also it's like that's what this bundle of sticks defago is there to do is he is a mockery of the man who was taken away right and it's okay, like well, the Wendigo is visiting via him. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, mm. I, I think it's the Wendigo coming to look at, like, and the, and the or be, uh, be using his body. I, I, and he comes that's, back the third time. I think it's back to the well, real guy. Yeah, yeah, well, like telepresence, yeah. Or the wires. It's a puppet, right? The way it can jump through yeah. the sky, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's like a 
Um, if you were to do this film, uh, this uh, story as a film, you would do well to do it as like stop motion animation or something, right? Um, because it would be so freaky because of course that's how they all are, but you just make it slightly more jaggy, slightly more, um, yeah, your internet's still pretty bad. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to get most of a word out, uh, through. Damn. You, try and reset your router, and uh, uh, you know, like it's probably just needs a reboot. Well, there's a great there's a great bit about this. If for it to be the one to go uh, directly, um, it's uh, in in the scene. Uh, Simpson watching close behind him, him being the doctor. Says he got the impression of a mask that was at the verge mm. of dropping off, and that underneath they would discover something black and diabolical, revealed in utter nakedness. Um, so that might I, I I read this as as it's biologically still uh, the Fago, and he's um, just being you know kind of uh, puppeted. Inhabited, yeah, but there's still there's still some of him some of him there. Um, He's not completely wiped out. That's what happens later on. Is when we see him, he's totally erased. The possess the possession uh, that the Wendigo, you know, gets in, gets you become Wendigo, right? The possession idea is interesting because at the end, when the Fago is at the fire trying to start a fire, something he's done a million times before, and he can't do it. It's like he's almost like he's being eaten away from the inside, you know, like he's the possession is becoming more and more and more and more. And, and then of course he dies and thinking about, uh, it's almost like he's a matchstick, you know, and it's lit from the bottom and it goes up. (laughs) It, you know, if you hold a match the right way up, it burns slow. You turn it the other way around, you'll burn your hand. And it burns faster, right? Just gravity. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the analogy, but I can't understand this feet of fire thing as a phenomenon unless it is either like to do with literal fire, which is important in the story, or yes. if it's to do with um, frostbite. And I, I think frostbite is kind of scarier in a certain sense, but. What is the Wendigo doing across the landscape? It's, it's, uh, that's why I think in the Matt Fox, the first illustration, the one you mentioned has, I've seen replicated. And of course, lo- people love to draw the Wendigo, right? Uh, give it the horns and all the things, but it, we never see it in the story, right? We see an outline. No. We see a vague figure. We have the description from the intimations. Yeah. But yeah, but you yourself draw it in one of your root bear cartoons right. back in 2018. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm taking it from the Matt Fox, right? But, uh, but focusing on that, the power of the Wendigos, uh, w- what it's doing is it's, uh, uh, in my drawing, I have it picking up Coffee Cat because Coffee Cat has hot coffee. And it's, it's like the opposite of warmth. It's cold. And so as it crosses the landscape, it's dropping its, uh, it, sort of the frost. Um, and one of the things that's interesting in the story, I hadn't noticed it before, um, is the, the, what does the Wendigo eat? It doesn't eat people. It eats moss. 
And what eats yeah, moss? Yeah, the, 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 the. moose. Moose. Right? They dig under the snow and eat moss all winter. Um, that's not a normal thing. So it's almost like the moose is hunting them, right? It's yes. it's the spirit of winter. It's the spirit of the landscape. It, I think uh, reading it as like a spirit of the land is a charitable way to go. Um, and th- this uninhabited land is uninhabited because of how harsh it is. It's uh, it's um, it's a wilderness, and that and then they go looking for moose and don't find it but the moose finds them in a certain sense so i think that's why it's got horns right because traditional wendigo don't have that that's it's it's much more based on uh human scale right but when the horns made me think of um i mean it's the wrong culture wrong content i was thinking of uh serunos you know the Uh Uh-huh. Dear elk god of uh, Irish mythology. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, well, it makes also, sense here. Also very wild in like yeah. places. Well, and this is about the hunt too, right? I mean, exactly. They're a hunting expedition, and and Cronunos is uh, is a great figure for this. Someone who you know ra- races around uh, too fast, too far, um, beyond uh, normal human uh, capacity. I, uh, I I sent uh, Paul. I guess Paul saw my drawing from. 2018 but actually in 2020 i wrote a little story i want to read it to you guys um uh it's titled when did i go question mark (laughs) (laughs) oh i see what you did there (laughs) my hike through the subarctic foothills that summer suddenly turned sinister when the bridge i had meant to cross was suddenly flooded by a late spring flood <laughs> I, I'd begun my trek west through the northern, uh, through northern Alberta into the, its border with the Northwest Territories in late May, back when my skin was sallow and my hair short. Now, in late June, my hair was in my eyes, as I thought I should return to that last homely shack I'd seen, the one with a cl- collapsed veranda, just 13 kilometers back. My feet felt hot. As I turned on the trail, where the three lonely larches had turned a lovely and sickly green, that shack held nothing, nothing but a history, a history of this lonely landscape, as it was perfectly placed to shelter me and my needs. And as I approached the sagging shanty, I noticed again that broken sign on the trail's bed, flipped it over, saw a new growth of lichen, lichen, uh, lichen. Uh, had obscured a few of the obscene words scrawled upon its pitted surface. As I read the words aloud to myself and the wind under the familiar twilight stars, I began my historical laughter. You can run, but you can't hide from the thing inside, it read. And as I threw the sign to my feet and crawled under that broken and redolent veranda into what had once been my home, I smiled, cracked open my preserves, and began feasting on the salted man meat made on my last mm. trip through the end. Mm. So this is obviously stealing a little bit from the the Blackwood. Salted man meat. <laughs> Salt. Oh, well, you have to preserve it, you know. Dun, dun, dun. Um, but notice it is it is about the sort of the unconscious, right? I think that's the connection uh, between the two. It, 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 trying to explain why people do things is hard. 
we usually confabulate our explanations. Um, and in stories, that's explicit. But I, I like that he's so masterful in this story. We don't know exactly what's going on. We have a theory. This is the Wendigo uh, showing up. But how do we know? Maybe they're just feeling hysterical. Uh, the guy got lost in the forest, right? He went out for a pee. <laughs> He's come back now. He needs some food and his feet are hurting. The outer narration is very unsympathetic uh, to the the inner explanation that we want, but he's also cheating. He's giving us these great sentences that make us think that the landscape is listening to us and caring about what is, you know, sneaking up on us. Somebody's mouse is going like crazy. Yep. It is not me. I tried muting myself. I don't know. Searching, but I do hear the cookie. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody's mouse. Not mine. Not it. Um, what was there? Uh, I think there was a sort of companion sentence to that listening forest, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, so it, it, it's the personification of inanimate things, right? That the 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 landscape is doing something for our experience, and the word listening comes up like eight times, but that's the only one where it's. It's the landscape that's doing it. The rest is, you know, the characters are listening to the forest, but scent and smell the description of what the, what he smells like. He smells like the Wendigo, right? And what does the Wendigo smell like? It smells, uh, acrid, right? What else? Like a lion, yes. Like a lion, right? Musky. Which threw me at first because I was thinking, okay, so that makes sense. The Wendigo is an eater of flesh, but no, the Wendigo eats moss. And I was like, lions, lions don't eat moss or eat no, they plants. don't. So that, that kind of threw me. Uh, here it is. Um, in the course, well, of I guess like muskox, I guess is what what I should have been thinking of rather than like a like a leaf. well, like a living animal, right? Um, in the, in the course of the following day, however, they were off, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true, there's a good word, inwardness, without divining that it was drawn out of him, as a matter of fact, by the very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, there were, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how Defago spoke vaguely of, quote, something he called a Wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He had also admitted the bewildering effect of, quote, that fool, uh, that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent, quote, pungent like an and acrid like the odor of lions and by mm-hmm. the time they were within an easy hour of 50 island water this is where the major action takes place right or lack of action um he had he had let slip the further fact a foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition as he felt afterwards that he had heard the vanished guide call quote unquote for help 
He omitted the singular phrases used, for he simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks. Mm. This is so interesting. He let, uh, he left out the fact that they were measured a wholly incredible distance. It seemed a question nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty that he should reveal and what uh, what he should reveal and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent. So why is he hesitant on the one and, you know, sure on the other? It's mm. cause, because he's kind of, he's thinking, I'm dreaming. This is, this is, that's not what happened. But then he's out in the snow looking at the ground and he's like, well, I'm in my right mind now. Right. But a fiery tinge in the snow, is that steam? Or is that uh, char? Char, right. Uh, and that doesn't fit with the idea of frostbite. But it does fit with the idea of turning a match upside down, right? And then I, I imagine those feet are like they're burnt off and they're like they're, he's like a, a candle being burnt upside down, you know, like it's just, mm-hmm. it's going away. And so he starts off as having human feet and he ends up with like stumps. But it doesn't say anywhere in the story that he's like, you know, much shorter <laughs> as he comes back into the camp, right? But uh, do we even see, right? Do we even see? Well, no. So much of this is about uh, about hiding and and uh, just hinting and revealing. Uh, it's about perception as well as about uh, lying and concealing. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting what. What Blackwood is doing is he's manipulating us to cause this effect, which, which is exactly what Lovecraft is aiming at, right? It's, it's all about the effect upon the reader. But he, he is teasing us with, with the, some descriptions and then hiding, having the characters hide from themselves and from us other things. The fact that we never see the Wendigo. Other than through its surrogate, I guess, Defago, or through, you know, at the, at the start of a morning or something where it's, you know, vague and it's in the forest and, and you see it by the, it's, it's scent. You see it by its, um, effect in the ground, but you don't actually, and, and then seeing the tracks leading it through a field, right? And then they're gone. Where did it go? up into the sky right <laughs> it jumped it's on the treetops just like as as and and i want to know what was in that song that uh defago sang well johnny cash can tell you <laughs> well i don't i don't know this song tell me uh what's it called oh ring of fire sure. ring of fire it's one of the most popular I I, well, so remember, I don't know I know of it but I do not know not the lyrics he's not a music person yeah no i'm not i'm not a i i know it's um a song. Uh, I fell into a burning ring of fire. Uh, it's a kind of religious vision, which people can also analyze as a sexual vision. Ah. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, just, just whip it out on YouTube and, and, and you'll understand. But there are, a lot, there are a lot of covers of it. It's a very ah. popular song. Um, but, it, uh, but again, it, it keeps repeating that as, as, as a chorus. You know, I fell into a burning ring of fire. Down, down, down I went. Um, 
and so it's yeah it's a it, it's a good one um i mean i mentioned that partly as a joke but also because it's uh it's got that kind of mythic ring to it which the story has i'm just looking for the word feet in here nope it's, it doesn't seem to have feet in this version but it um love is a burning thing and it makes it a fiery ring bound with yeah. wild desire fell into yeah. a ring of fire I fell yeah. into a. I can hear Johnny Cash now. Yeah, as you should, as everyone should. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I I I like this story. I think it's not quite as awesome as as the Willows. Uh, but I haven't seen anything that leveled as high as these two of of Blackwoods. Like I've read probably another six stories by him and they're they're interesting he's mostly uh, mr jim moon was saying that in the uk he used to go on the radio all the time and yeah tell stories and he was called the ghost man Uh um but neither of these is ghost stories exactly well the british love their ghost stories they do and it's a christmas tradition right which is just wonderful and 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 sick and i enjoy it very much um and you know that's that shows up like the beginning of uh of uh uh james right um mr james yeah no 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 um oh you uh, mean um uh the turn of the screw yeah it is a nested narrative yeah it is a christmas ghost story um and and that's very popular, but I know these are these are usually considered to be as two great pieces. Uh, I think I think one big difference is that this is a short story and a fairly short story, whereas uh, the Willows is more of a yeah, novel. it's about double the length, I think. Yeah, at least at least, uh, but it does have the similarity that you point out that it's uh, you know people who go away from civilization and they're going into into the wild in a canoe, Although, literally in a canoe, right? Yeah, and well, it, by the way, that canoe in the other story is a Canadian canoe as well. Got to get that Canadian thing. In he there. does Irish like thing. it. He he thinks it's a real thing. Well, the one the one in uh, in the Willows. I'm sorry. The one in um, in the Wendigo is a birch bark canoe. Mm-hmm. Um, Even more Canadian. Is, <laughs> yeah, but those are beautiful. I, I tried to make one of those ones. Those are lovely, and they're so light and just so so mm-hmm. so. If you're doing your portage. That's what you need. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to take a giant metal or wooden one. No, you want you know some Rissa. You get to try and find a good birch bark canoe and take it out. I think Lake they're uh, super expensive, aren't they? I don't know. I've lost track. But or you could make one. I mean, yeah. they're guides and how to do. It. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll have to make one. It yeah. is. It is basically a skin, right? It's um, looking uh, at pictures of them. It. The beavers are uh, chopping down a lot of birch trees around here, so I'm sure we've got a lot of wood. There you go. And, but it's not like a skin of horror. No, but it is. <laughs> Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of chopping in this, uh, where he's marking the trees. And he marks the trees, like, I think he chops it twice, right? And then he starts thinking, I'm doing this so I can find my way back. So it's like, he's almost like, uh, uh, it's like that, uh, Hansel and Gretel, right? Where he's marking the trail with the stones or marking the trail with the, with the breadcrumbs. But well, as, he plays- huh? He's blazing them, which we could yeah. consider to be a nice pun. Uh, right. Uh, Very um, nice pun, actually. But, yeah. but he also, he's, he, as he's doing it, he says, it's going to hear me, <laughs> right? It's going to hear me. And yet he keeps doing it. 
because he's trying to find this guy, but he wa- he needs to go into the woods to find him. And, you know, and then DeFago ends up getting back to camp before pract- or at the same time as everybody, right? I, I really, I, I like the way it's structured where it's, it's like, it starts with five guys. Uh, I think it's five. And then it goes down to two different groups and we don't see one of those groups for a while. And then, uh, right. the, the two guys are separated. Um, and then there's just one guy and then they call come back together. So it's, it's like, uh, one of those, it's almost like the Apollo mission, right? You got a whole bunch of guys on the ground. <laughs> um, and then they put three guys in the sca- in the capsule and then they rocket them up and then, one of the guys stays in orbit and two guys go down and then two guys go back up to the capsule, three reunited, and then they go back down to the earth again, right? So it's that style of a story where, or, um, there's, I think it's operation, is it Black Buck? When, uh, during, um, the, uh, what's the war off of, South, off of Argentina, what are those islands called? Falklands. Yeah, so I think it was Operation Black Buck where the British have these ancient bombers, World War, uh, well, Cold War era bombers, um, that are like almost 40 years old and they need to get them t- down there to bomb their runways. And so they send up, uh, I think it was like 18 fuel, <laughs> fueling planes, um, to send I think it was two, two of these bombers, uh, to, to the island off of, you know, South America. And the fuel planes, as they're going across the sky, right? They need to refuel each other and then some turn back. And then they're all refueling these two front, you know, bombers that have the bombs, but there's so many support planes to get them there that when by the time they, you know, are halfway across, they've lost like two thirds of their, they're fuelers, <laughs> but they, they, it's just such a massive distance and they didn't have planes that could do the job. It ends up with just barely enough to get there and then to get back. And that's kind of like this expedition into the wilderness. They start in the city, they go to a cabin, then they go to a sub camp, then they go off and then they all come back and it sort of collapses back into itself, like almost, or like one of those, an antenna that, uh, spreads mm, out. Yeah. And yeah, so, but yeah, a telescoping antenna, right? So that eventually, um, the story of what was in contact with whatever Wendigo is, is completely hidden to us. But as it collapses back down, um, it affects each member of the group. I, mm, I, I've never seen nice. that story structure, um, as explicit and as it's really well done here. Oh, that's um, a great point. Uh, how, how did he like, I, how did he manage to do it just this well? I don't know. Because he's a good writer, but I, this is an extraordinarily good story. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, okay, I, so I, I want to bring up something at this point. Okay. And I, I'm going to come to this at an oblique angle because, you know, why not? So, Jesse, you're big into public domain stories and the sharing of public domain stories mm-hmm. and all that that is one of your pillars. So I'm going to ask you this. What responsibility does someone republishing a public domain story have in keeping the fidelity of the original story? You mean like uh, not censoring the uh, – the... Co- Yes. Yeah. Co- 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 correct. Yes, exactly. 
Well, so that, I wanted your yeah. opinion on that. Uh, well, the way I started, you know, I the PDF page that I put together, right? The thing that is now 7,000 things long or whatever it is. Um, the reason I did that was because I didn't trust uh, what... Like, uh, Wayne June read a, a story by Lovecraft. And it, instead of saying uh, Mr. Niggerman, which is the name of the uh. the, the pet... He yeah. said, Mr. Blackman. I've done that before. Right? Now, why do you yeah. do that? It's because you don't want to offend people. But I wasn't looking at the text when I first heard that story. Uh, it was um, The Rats in the Walls. So I'm like, how did, the, how did I end up not knowing that this was a racist story? I didn't. Uh, it's because I was not looking at the original. So I think it's my responsibility to faithfully reproduce it as it was and not to second guess um, or be the parent of a person who can't a, handle it the way I could. But, but, but it's not even a matter of handling it. It's a, I mean, what about the people who are directly offended by such things? I so mean, sad. That's not my job. My job is to present reality as it is, as it was, right? I don't think I should uh, be the guy whose job it is to fix history by taking out the icky bits. I think it's your job to be faithful to the truth at all times. So let me ask ask this then. What about uh, the practice of having an introduction or a tag or Mm. a warning – um, and so for uh, Rats in the Walls, which is in many ways for me one of the, my favorite Lovecraft stories. A terrific story. Um, would you, you you know say, would you call the cat Black Man or N Man um, and then have an introductory tag where you say, yeah, we're going to replace this term? Um, no, 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 no. Just reproduce it as it is. Because the thing is, is as time goes on, right, people's, uh, people's fixations change. It used to be that, you know, some words were taboo. And now those words have been replaced. And we, we should, when, that's why, that's why I scanned original publications whenever possible or earliest publications whenever possible. It's because they've been less fiddled with. I'm getting a more pure example of where it came from and the context. I like to include whatever introductory material we're, with it and of course the illustrations it it frustrates me frustrates me to no end that people take out illustrations when they're republishing mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. they do it because they're just trying to make money and they don't want to have a hassle i mm-hmm. include it because i want you to see the original context i want to see the how the editor introduced it because sometimes that tells you like uh, the best example of this i can think of is in william wilson mm-hmm. um, which has uh, two strange early publications. We can't tell which one came first. They were simultaneous for as much as we know. But there's a joke in the first line that tells you which pu- was published in. Without that knowledge, without seeing that, that context, that this is in a, the book was called The Gift. One of the books that it was first published in is called The Gift. And in the, in the first line of the story, it's in the present volume. Get it? Present. Gift. He's making a joke. He was writing it specifically for that thing. 
And that is a way of seeing something that you can't see if you start fiddling with, you know, taking out information or lying, right? So is it a lie to say that the cat is Blackman? Yes, because that's not what the racist character or the racist author said it was. You're cleaning it up. And so saying I'm replacing uh, nigger Jim with robot Jim, which somebody did. I would think that that's a mistake, even if you say uh, the word, the word uh, nigger has been replaced with, or uh, the, the N word has been replaced with the word robot. Oh, you'd have to, the, you'd have 20. to know that the word, like in 50 years, you'd have to know that N word was, uh, yeah. and, and not everybody starts in a position of complete knowledge, right? So our yeah. job for the future is not to be, uh, prudish and worried about uh, what people in the ba- past were screwing around with. Why? Why would you think of this particular story, Paul? Because I don't. It, it's racist. Beep, 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 beep. Be- no, but beep, I didn't because, think because I did. I wasn't expecting the N word to pop up into my ears. Yeah, it's it not like, much. I, I stopped it. Like, wait, what the heck? I mean, yes, this the story has racist overtones to begin with, but just just having that word pop up, it, it was kind of mm. it was kind of like the, the turd in the in the punch bowl. It's like, what the heck is this? And so I started started thinking about well, would if I was narrating this, would I have changed it? I mean, I'm not an audiobook narrator, but yes, I probably would because yeah, most I mean, people I do, mean, you, and you, I think you, it's a you, big you, mistake. You've used the word several times in these last few minutes. It's made me uncomfortable every of time. Of course, because, it's it's an yeah. uncomfortable word. Uh, I'm going to read the quote here because what's so interesting is that it's thrown in here randomly, seemingly. He watched the he watched the men a moment longer before diving into the stuffy tent where Simpson already slept soundly. Hank, he saw, was swearing like a mad African in a New York nigger saloon. But it was yeah. also but it was the swearing of quote unquote affection. The ridiculous oaths flew freely now that the cause of their obstruction was uh, uh, asleep. Presently, he put his arm almost tenderly upon his comrade's shoulder, and they moved off together into the shadows where their tent stood faintly glimmering. So, to me, what this is telling me is that this word was, it was not, it was not offensive in the way it is today, right? This story is, I want to say 1910. Is that right? Uh, yep, 1910. Yeah, it's 19. Well, okay. This, the progressive era, was the most racist point in U.S. history, right? It's also mm. clearly the most racist point in uh, in British history. If you're Algernon Blackwood, it, it uh, I, I did you disagree with that characterization, Ryan? No, I, I, I'd have a hard time picking out what would be the most racist period in American history. That Wilson that was pretty some... fucking racist, and he he's in charge of not No, but around this period, right? Um, no, he's he's a bit later, but, but there's there's all kinds of ways to measure it. But um, but I, I I take your point. I'm also I, I'm starting to run out of time, and I had one question I wanted to ask all of you. Yeah, can, can I do that, or yeah. should I? No, do it. Yeah. Um, and and Marissa and I are basically going to have to go like go meet up somewhere in Burlington and record a special podcast just for you guys. I think. But Please. the question the question <laughs> I wanted to ask was um, the um, uh, I'm really struck by the senses. Um, in this, mm-hmm. in this story, mm-hmm. and how the senses are just key plot points, uh, and the conclusion actually ends on sense. Um, it uh, let's see, 
uh, seeing the Wendigo is the last line, last phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the conclusion there, you know, he knew what it all meant. The Fagot had seen the Wendigo. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the key way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And yet we have sound, uh, which is crucial throughout, as we've identified before. Um, and then we have scent, mm-hmm. which seems, uh, I'm just curious, what, what do you make of the interplay of these, of these three? Um, I mean, is scent seems to be the kind of almost like the, the secret power of this. Um, is this really about vision that we can't quite see is sound the only trustworthy sense in the story? Uh, my, my whole thing is, is if you put it in my hand, right? You say, this is a cube, Jesse, and you put it in my hand. I can feel it. I can feel its weight. I can feel its, its coldness. It's real to me, right? This is uh, an old expression. You put it in my hand, right? Um, a scent can be mysterious, right? And one of the things about scents is if you go to a small town, like where they, they have a, a pulp mill, right? It yeah. smells terrible. But if you I live mean, like, there, uh, yeah, like like dri- like driving to Thunder Bay, coming north out of Minnesota, you can smell it. it oh it, yeah, it, it hits you, it hits you, it hits you like a brick. But if you live there, you don't notice it, right? It's invisible. Smell is invisible, right? It, literally, you can't see it. But, you get used to it, yeah. and you get it used to it, and you become desensitized to it, and it's just uh, it, like your nose. Is getting the chemicals and it's, it's saying no need to pre- present this to the brain, right? Sound is a very similar phenomenon. We can hear a sentence or a part of a sentence and we can say, I think this is what it meant, right? But sight is something we question as well, but it, it's not as question. So it's like a scale. Smell is less reliable than scent, uh, than hearing and sight is less reliable than uh, or more reliable than hearing and scent and putting it in your hand is the most reliable thing right and so whenever a story does this um uh i heard this story from a somebody right it it allows that telescoping effect um so that when we have this document in our hand and somebody says this doc this manuscript was found in a bottle or this manuscript was found in an old house and you're reading a copy of it just as it was from there it makes it more real because we're physically holding it right so i think that that's the effect that at least that's the effect that i i think he's intuiting into us so are you saying that we don't have the embedded text we don't have we don't get the fuggo story no um, we don't they, they so, are saying he's, yeah, yeah, that's a very he saw the wendigo yeah. right so instead what we're left with Oh, it's interesting that this kind of reverses the human experience. Whereas in, in personal daily life, you know, Marissa sends me a note. Right. Uh, I, what is she right? But if she's talking to me, sight and, and sound, that's what I, we don't really find that to be much more trustworthy. Oh yeah. But in the, but in the story text, you're saying the reverse that uh, because we don't have the embedded story, well, all we have to go by are the, are the senses like the, uh, what, what's the old joke? Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? That's right. That's right. Uh, so we're stuck with just trying to make do of these senses, and these senses are all muddled and muffled but and hard to pick it, up. It's, it's like, you know, we might have a verbal agreement, right? Um, 
and you say, I would like to do X, Y, and Z. And I say, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a verbal agreement, right? Oh, and it might, so. might hold up in court. But until you text message it to me or in better send me a fax with your signature on it that I can hold up Facts. in court and say, judge, look at this piece of paper. Uh, or, you know, or, or even better, you know, old fashioned right. letter with a, a blue right. ink, right? That makes it real in a way that, you know, I heard my, from my friend <laughs> that he said that they had a contract. That's hearsay. We don't allow it, right? Literally hearsay, as in it's, uh, a, a, depre- say, yes. it's a deprecated yeah. sense, right? And well, if you said, I had a whiff that he was a serial killer, come on. <laughs> That's not well, going to work, right? Well, law is about law is completely about text, which yes. is why you know undergrads who are English majors become really good lawyers. Um, I mean, that's the training arc. Um, but daily life is not usually like that. I mean, so if if we think about the, all of us, we're on, we're in a hunt. Um, we're we're somewhere in uh, Nineveh territory. Mm. Um, so the hunt is desperate. Um, and, you know, uh, and Paul steps away for a bit, mm. and we don't see him. But then we find a note that he's left. Yeah, scratch your head. Oh, this is true. Paul comes back and he's got an <laughs> armful of you know, armful of fish. And we're like, Oh, this is great. Now we can smell that, we can trust that. I mean the um this is this is the reverse. And 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 yet and yet we all know from creative writing classes that the senses are crucial, that you mm-hmm. have to hit the senses in order to convince people of the reality of it, which kind of brings us back to the unreality of the story. Uh, yeah. by the way, um one of the ways you can get Wendigo psychosis, possibly is by eating uh, the liver of a of a polar bear. Uh, you get hyper-vitaminized, and uh, it makes you go crazy. I'm trying really hard to avoid getting into um, ecological literary criticism right now. And the reason is because I don't have time. Um, and the other reason is because this is two years now of me living on a vegan diet, and I, I don't want that to warp my critical acumen um but one of the things that occurs to me in the story is that it is about hunting oh yeah and and people are killing uh animals and living on them there's you know uh because there's a point i i don't i'm sorry i can't find it it was earlier in the story um where uh one character says with that defago is the only thing between him and uh and death by starvation Mm. um it's uh it's it's a great uh, yeah that dependence is is important yeah, let me see if I can find it. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, here it is. Um, he realized his own utter helplessness. Only Defago, as a symbol of a distant civilization where man was a master, stood between him and a pitiless death by exhaustion and starvation. Which is what happens when you're in a place like mm-hmm. this. And he's dependent um, on Defago. Yeah, which is why uh, the de fagot in the original sense of of wood when he starts burning up is uh is so terrible but they're but but they're there just to just to eat um i mean so it's interesting if you think about the uh the wendigo as a as an emblem of uh, a, a community's either starvation or too much food um this is a story about people trying to get the right amount of food to live on um even though they don't need to they can go back. This is not. Yeah, they don't this, need to this, be hunting. That's not the reason they're there. Because yeah. the, they need food. Did you? Did you all see um, in the Wikipedia as well? And I hope my internet is working now. Yeah, um, it is. Lovely. The uh, uh, It's about me, greed, and sex. 
I'm that's gonna... the mirror floor and like the um is my internet still good? Uh, crapped out halfway through. I think you said the Wendigo oh. is known to invoke feelings of insatiable greed, hunger. Is that the one you're? Yes, greed and excess. Excess. Control F. Excess. Ah, the Wendigo is seen as the embodiment embodiment of gluttony, greed, and excess. Never satisfied after killing and consuming one person, they're constantly searching for new victims. Yes, so this is the traditional belief, uh, rather than in this story. Uh, but it, I think that he heard about the Wendigo in Canada, right? <laughs> From probably native guides when he was out hunting and canoeing. Um, and uh, Defago is—he's—he's he's, uh, essentially a voyageur, right? He's a leftover from that uh, yeah. uh, courier du bois era, mm -hmm. um, a guide, a native of the area, if not a native of the the people. Um, but Punk, though, which is a crazy name, by the way, I—I I, I don't think so, right? I don't think. Uh, Punk is a British term. <laughs> it comes... Yeah, it's like, it, or, or, or it was given to him, kind of like Tonto. Yeah. Oh, definitely, right? Ah, uh. right, because that's not his. No, no mother names her child Punk, right? No. So that's my the... wife would do it. <laughs> I actually have a good friend who named uh, who named her first child uh, Vivian uh, after Vivian and the Young Ones. Is was Vivian a male or female? Um, the character in the young ones is male, but my friend's child was uh, female. Yeah. Uh, my dad had a good friend who was a dude whose name was Vivian. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh. A UK name, right? Somebody. Yeah. 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 I mean, very that, strange. That is a boy named Sue. So he's there to go with Johnny Cash. Back to Johnny Cash. Back to Johnny, Back to Johnny Cash. Cash. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, it sucks that Marissa's internet's terrible. I shared with you a cartoon from uh, a friend. For of years, you kids have been eating, biting into chocolate Easter bunnies. Well, now turnabout is fair play. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, yeah. Poor Marissa. Poor, poor Jesse and Paul and Brian. Not getting to hear Marissa's talking. Yeah, Marissa's. Yeah, you got to get better. You know, I I was reading. Maybe it was Brian talking about how bad Vermont internet was. Yes, it was. <laughs> oh man, and it remains. I, I I think I think this is actually tied into what Paul was saying. Um, you know, like what is our duty? Uh, to and uh, I, I was thinking about this morning. Like one of the things that I I think most people don't think about that I think about a lot in podcasting terms is I think mm -hmm. about in fifty years, what are people going to want to have from this podcast not what people are going to want from it today because today they want you know whatever they want today uh but in 50 years they're going to want to understand us better and in order to do that we have to be as clear like um there was an article or no i guess it was uh the latest dan carlin he's talking about uh uh anthony and cleopatra yeah, yeah, but the very Strasbourg interview. Yeah, yeah, it's a good interview, right? Um, wait, wait. and new Dan Carlin? Yeah, new, Dan Carlin. it's a, it's a short one. It's the, um, uh, yeah. hard curry history addendum is called. 
It's yeah. the other podcast. It's only, it's only an hour and ten minutes. You should check that <laughs> podcast out. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's, it's an interview. Podcast. I just I just haven't seen an update on them. Yeah, it's yeah, it was a, just a few days ago. Yeah. So great. Thank you. One of the things you know, they said in when when a war is happening today in Ukraine or wherever, people writing about the war don't explain how firearms work, right? <laughs> they don't think about that at all. They only think yeah. about like uh, what weapons and laws are going to Azov or whatever. And then the future people have to decode this stuff and understand our brains better. So I'm much more like, how will people 50 years from now understand us better? Let's be explicit about things because it's hard enough as it is. Thinking about uh, what, you know, one of the weird things that you read when you read Edgar Allan Poe, is you read like in the year 19 and then underscore. <laughs> what does that mean? I have kind of come to figure it out, but when you're listening to some narrator read it, um, they usually say 1900 or something like that. And I'm yeah. like, that's not right. Or 18, 1800. Like they just don't know how to read it. Yeah. And how do we, how do you do that translation? Be as faithful and an understanding as you possibly can because most stuff is written for the moment, but it it has a legacy that lasts. And thinking about uh, the long tail of the audience, you know, when I was tracking the stats on this podcast, we would get, uh, a you know, a lot of downloads the first week, but they don't stop. They continue for years and the tail is much longer than that first week. And the total yeah. number is much longer than that first week. So, you know, Paul's worried about the show being seven months late. I'm thinking like 70 years late <laughs> would be fine because I mean, I, I mean, if, if people are listening to this podcast 70 years from now, hi, uh, that would be remarkable and very weird to think that might, it might last because we live in such a perishable age of which is crazy considering how whatnot. Yeah, uh, but all all of the accounts, you know, your, all your DMs are going to be destroyed, right? When Twitter deletes or whatever, some upgrade happens. All all the ephemeral nature of our our communications through direct messages or text chats or whatever, it's all just gone. So we have to gone like preserve like the weird culture that we live in right mm -hmm. now. In podcasts, which are the best way because they're independent, they're free to distribute. And, you know, there's so many ways in which they are resilient compared to what happened to all the blogs, Brian. I keep writing mine. Yeah. And the only reason I know about it is because Twitter tells me that you're, you wrote something, right? Yeah. Well, but as I soon as Twitter. they're gone. Yeah. Exactly. You have to. Otherwise. Well, well, speaking of 70 years and gone, one of the reasons I have to go is because I have to turn into my publisher the revised manuscript for my new book, which is about the next uh, 80 years in Ooh. higher education uh, and climate change. So um, it's the uh, uh, first book that I've written, which includes phrases like possible extinction of the human race. Hmm. Um, so Not, uh, uh, not I, the last, unless you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, 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 I need to run. All right. Um, I, Thank I, you, sir. Has been, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, uh, all of you, for diving into a wonderful, sweet story. Um, I think, Marissa, next time um, we should get you to try your cell phone as a hotspot. Because um, I don't know how your internet connection is as a phone, but it might be better. I, it's something I always forget.
uh, to mention. It's a, it's a good trick because you still have internet, just not through the regular device. Uh, why is it, why is yeah. Vermont internet suck so much? Uh, rural state, uh, low population, which means that it's not a good business case to bring out um, for-profit uh, telcos everywhere. Uh, the state has screwed up repeatedly over the past 20 years in trying to support different projects. Um, and uh, and that's just become kind of self-perpetuating. Um, people have avoided the state to an extent because of the bad infrastructure, so there's less and less people. Um, and uh, also some of the te- some of the terrain is actually physically hard to get mm. stuff through. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of woods uh, and also uh, some small mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't hear what you said. Oh, man. <laughs> I feel so bad. It's the Wendigo interfering with our podcast. Maybe not. Um, I, I'm really interested in any of these... Um, uh, out in the rural, I'm in r- rural and out in the woods. It's usually pretty good, but once every two to three weeks, it has a bad internet weather day. Yeah. Um, what do you, what, what, Brian, if you're still out there, would you consider that, um, very expensive Elon Musk satellite internet? Cause oh, absolutely. I, I keep thinking absolutely. if I was going to move into the forest, the main thing I would want is internet <laughs> other than electricity to run it. Yeah, um, both, but it's expensive, right? It's a hundred bucks uh, a month, I think. Yeah, I'd gladly sell my blood for that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess you might. Yeah, have because to. because well, satellite satellite internet before Starlink is is horrendous. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's really really bad, and Starlink really made a big difference from what I can tell. Yeah, that's. I mean, uh, it seems to be good as a idea. He's put up a lot of satellites to support it. Um, I did. I hear. I heard they sent some of them to Ukraine to, uh, yeah, uh, prevent um, blockages. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, Russia could really use um, the Russian forces could use Starlink because their networks they've completely fouled that up. Um, they were trying to rely on cell phone connections, and now they're basically falling back to about a two G speed. Um, so one of the problems the Russian forces are having is that their communications command and control is is pretty pretty fragile and messed up. Well, it hasn't been tested uh, in a while, right? They're not. Um, uh, I guess I guess well, there was well, some. Yeah, no, Chech- Chechnya. Yeah, Chechnya. but that was still a while ago, right? Ten years ago. Yeah, but Crimea was not much of an invasion, right? It didn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Def- there wasn't a. Uh, a counter. It was just no, an annexation, a reannexation. Yeah, um, they haven't done anything like this at scale. Not, uh, so not the closest for, that yeah, I, I would think it would be the uh, would be the support for Assad in Syria. Um, that's true. And, yeah, um, but that's a very different uh, infrastructure. Um, but anyway, I did. I, ha- I have to go. So um, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you all. Yep. Uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Uh, when is Alrighty. that going to be? <laughs> I don't think he's I, listed, but. Um, um, it's okay. No. Uh, it's, anything you want to sign up here for, Paul, that you haven't seen already? Well, remember oh, Saturdays. I see. Okay. Yeah. A lot of Saturdays, Saturdays and also also my also my uh, my trips to Britain making longer books implausible. Marissa, um, S- Strawberry Spring is on the schedule, and I keep seeing people talking about it. So, um, 
uh, when you're ready to do that, we, I think we booked, uh, Stephen King in between. Yeah. That, uh, everything's eventual uh, is around the time when you suggested strawberry spring. She's still here. I don't know if she's still, yeah, she's so I, see, I, she's I, I still, still think you got a gap in 521 or yeah, something. Don't know. I don't know what, uh, I don't know if Marissa wants to put it in there, but, um, it's Put good. something short. Yeah, on a, it's short. On a Sunday, right? Um, I, this is a Strawberry yeah. Spring is a uh, Spring Hill Jack story. Oh well, yes. I then I can, then I can talk about the Mark Harder books and the mythology and all that fun stuff. Uh, I can bring a lot to that party. All right. Well, I haven't read the story yet, but um, that's what I heard. Um, and it's uh, it's weird to it's weird to see like that phenomena happen where you hear something and then you start seeing it everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's eerie. a matter of human attention span. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It's not it just means you to, you're, yeah. you're primed to see it now. Well, uh, so on the other it. hand, you know, there are th- things like where they peak up, right? You know, like, uh, true, but, but I mean, but human attention is, I mean, you know about, the, you know about the, yeah. the, the, the basketball game experiment. Well, what, what, uh, what about the five twenty one, Marissa? Um, or I'm not sure what day of the week that is. Let me just make sure. Uh, five twenty. Uh, five twenty one is a Saturday, so you mean five twenty two? Five twenty two. Yeah, five twenty two. Marissa, is that good? Change it to five twenty two. In anticipation. Can you guys hear me right now? Well, yeah, we can hear you. In hopes. I'm just. Hopes. I'm just looking at my calendar. Okay. I'll send track. you the link here too. Um, I don't know that I can get the original publication. Um, it's in some weird magazine that I've never heard of, but I will endeavor to do so. Strawberry Spring. Strawberry Spring. Somebody asked the other day um, if you could only have one author uh, on a desert island or whatever, which author would you choose? And I was like, I've. That's I I want to do Lawrence Block, but I've read too much of his stuff, so I feel like I'd be rereading too much. But Stephen King is somebody who's obviously a talented writer, and I've read very little of compared to you know his his giant swath. Well, but the, but but but, the, but they're also authors you can reread and find new things every time. If I, I mean, suppose what, what yeah. one of my desert island authors would probably be if I got tons of time and got nothing to do with that island, I can sit down and try to figure out. All the intricacies of a Gene Wolfe novel. I've oh. got so Gene Wolfe could be a good Desert Island novel for that way. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I'm convinced. I love Gene Wolfe enough, but I do want to try. Um, uh, I think I can do yeah May twenty. Was that a yes? Did you say May twenty two? Oh yeah, May twenty second. Yeah, at eight a.m. Yeah. All right, pop it in there, Paul. I'm I'm gonna see. Uh, it's um okay. So what's the name of this story? It's Strawberry Spring by Stephen King. It Strawberry rhymes. Spring. Uh, so looks like um it was in Cavalier, which is not a magazine I I thought it was in. Um, let's see how much it is on eBay because <laughs> this is not a magazine that's well scanned. Oh, by the way, um, Paul, you can get your yeah. own. You can buy Hugo's on on eBay. <laughs> not. I don't want to. I want to eBay Hugo. I want a Hugo it's my a own. Fake, damn it. It's a fake one. Um, don't need it. Don't want. I want a real one. 
Uh, well, I don't, and you, if it has a cat, okay. All right, thank you, I'll, I'll, Marissa. Yeah, Marissa, I, I, I've put it on the schedule for five twenty-two. All right. Um, uh, uh, did you put in Evan too? I think he's he wants to be that there. Okay, it's at the bottom. Um, Marissa, Paul, Evan. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesse and Paul <laughs> and Marissa and Evan. Oh yeah, so I did. A Bye, Marissa. Bye, Marissa. I did a recompilation of stats. I'm still in first place, obviously. I'm not surprised. Scott's in second. Yeah. Marissa is in third now. Yeah, it makes sense. Because she's Mice be- is in fourth. Was she yeah, not Mice before? Um, I mean, she, she and Mice have been going back and forth. Really? As far as who has keeps Oh, uh, I can't. Yeah. I can't imagine because well, I guess Mice has been on a lot more recently. Yeah. So so. Not that she's on a lot, but then then comes Mister Jim Moon. Then. Then Jenny, although Jenny has been on in a while, Jenny. No, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, actually, actually, next Evan. I forgot about Evan. And don't I forget about Evan. 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 Will then, be in there somewhere. Will's at forty-four at the moment. Oh, that's a lot. Yep. So. Uh, so yeah, so, so there's some good stuff. And then uh, that no man's land is coming up. Um, we skipped that one because um, uh, of. Connor's um did you see he he was went to Ayers Rocks or whatever they call it now in uh, Uluru, yes. Uh, yeah, spell it for me. U L U R U. Oh, that's not so hard. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's it's hard to pronounce, it's just not hard for us well. Yeah. I would like to go there, but I mean I'd have to be respectful of Don't of, do um, any uh evil Knievel style jumps over it. No, 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 but even things like photos and stuff, you know, you have to do respectfully because it is a sacred place. You got, yeah. you got, I mean, yeah, it's a, ju- yes, it's a. Don't go over there and start it's... chipping off a piece of the rock, selling oh, it on God. eBay. Oh, God. People do horrible things yes, to they do. sacred places and national monuments. Hey, I got a piece of the Acropolis right here on my desk, Paul. <laughs> um, we can no longer be friends now. <laughs> it belongs in a museum. <laughs> oh my um, god! I, I honestly think that what the British Museum should do would make make reproductions of all the Elgin marbles as faithful as they can, and then give the other ones give the ones give the give the originals back to Grace. I saw somebody, maybe it was you who retweeted it. Um, it was somebody's idea is a heist story in which uh, the. Uh, the plucky band of um, wokesters steals all the stuff from the British Museum and then gives it back to the countries that it was stolen from. Yeah. And uh, and then I think it was uh, that cynical Sersova Sisrova guy said uh, where they promptly destroy it because they are Taliban or whatever. <laughs> um, um, well, well, I mean that is the thing. I mean the yes. the, the sacred sites in Palmyra, Egypt too. Break and need to break my heart. What, what those fuckers have done. Well, that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Is like, you can't go repainting the Mona Lisa just because you think that ladies no, need eyebrows. You know. No, no, but 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 there's some things that just like, I mean, the, the, the Elgin marbles are, are are I think are open shut case. The British Museum doesn't need to keep them. They could they can have reproductions. There's 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 reproductions in the museum already of things in other museums to begin with. So mm-hmm. having reproductions of the Elgin marbles and giving the other ones back to Greece so they can have 
their cultural heritage back. I'm in favor of that. And then That's- Greece is in such dire straits, they sell them to another museum. Right. Well, it's theirs to do what they want with. That, I think that, you're they, you're privileging nation states, Paul. <laughs> I'm privileging original cultures. Yeah, but those original cultures are long dead, right? The, to say that the uh, Arabs of uh, of um, Egypt are responsible for the pyramids is to they're, they're not, but yeah, they, they but the, but the, but they're, they they occupy the, the lands currently, right? I mean, I mean, yes, that that can be get that can get to a very dicey slope. Yeah, there's, there's totem poles in England. Uh, Canada should have them back. See the logic, right? Um, oh, oh, okay. To, to give you an example, in Rome, in the city of Rome, there's a dozen obelisks. Oh yeah. Why, why are there a double, why are there a dozen obelisks in, in Rome? Trophies. Jesse. Trophies. The, the, the Romans, when they conquered Egypt, said, yep, this is ours. Now we can take them and just took them in and put them up in Rome. And the funny thing so is – So should they the, send those back? Maybe. No. No. But, but the, 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 the funny part is some of those obelisks are not in the positions they were when the Romans erected, erected them. Of course. They've been moved around through, through the history of the city. Yeah, of which course. Which is even more hilarious that they decide, no, we're just going to put the, the, the obelisk it is somewhere a, else. Before. It is a very difficult problem. And that's I mean, why I mean, all I we mean, can do is not fuck it up as much as we can. I, I mean, I mean, different. Like, for example, the, the obelisk in New York City, the, the obelisk along the Thames, the obelisk in Paris were all donated by Egypt. That's different. They, those, I think, can stay. Well, who donated it from Egypt? Was it the people? The, the the gov- the the, gov- the, the government duly is- elected government the duly elected government of Egypt in what in, year fifties um, I believe yeah I don't think they were all it that was, duly it, elected were they well the well okay the, the the government in charge I mean as as basically for services rendered in helping evacuate other treasures and stuff from the creation of the Aswan Dam yeah I get it I'm just I mean, saying I mean, maybe maybe in five hundred years the people of Egypt will want them back but that's future that's future us is problem. Yeah, who, problem. What if the people of Egypt are all uh, black Africans from uh, South Africa? By then, that's uh, that, that's the that, that's the problem, right? Is that you know these claims lose lose power over time, and the best thing we can do is try to not fuck up whatever it is. So just thinking about like shipping stuff back. Every time you pick something up and you move it around, you have chance of breaking things, right? airplane could crash ship could sink it's not a very large chance but the more you do it the more it happens right if well, I, I mean when, when, when i went to the going back to the uh El Jamars, when i first went to uh the bears museum back in the early 1990s i mean they were just presented there without any context like here's the elder marbles ha isn't that great when i went there in 2014 <laughs> that's what the sign said here are the Elgin Marvels, comma, ha, exclamation point. <laughs> no, but, but that was the sort of sense of like we have them aroused. When I went there in 2014, there was science talking about the whole thing and and the, and basically admitting that it's a thorny problem about hmm. who should should have them and why and leaving it, leaving it up to the – Basically, up to the visitor to decide whether or not they belong there, which is kind of – When kind Greece of cop- becomes strong and invades England – and takes back the Elgin Marbles, and then they also take uh, Big Ben <laughs> and plant it somewhere. Now, that would, now, that, now there's a there's a, 
then we <laughs> say, we'll be saying a, a thousand years later, uh, the um, Mexicans who now run England will say, um, we want our Big Ben back. I don't know why they have Russian accents, but the Mexicans I, who I, now I, run I, England I, 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 want I Big Ben back. Too, I think you've been playing Civ too much. No, I, mean, don't I don't Civ. play you Civ almost play at all. I haven't played it probably for five years. Probably not. Oh, maybe I played the original on uh, archive.org. Maybe. For a minute. Yeah, I it's did, fun. Anyway, I'm going to I'm going to go. Yep. Um maybe PUBG later. I have actually Yeah, you know, I haven't been playing yeah. much. I've been my I, mom's still packing up all her stuff and Oh for oh cleaning so, so this is real this is gonna be really real then you are she, going she to. bought a house years not years ago, a month ago or whatever, and she um she uh just sold her house, so oh, now she's okay. So it's so now we really she's real. got a big, big uh, box in her backyard that's supposed to be loaded up with stuff. Well, to what take about over. you, Jesse? What well, do you I don't do? want to live on Vancouver Island. There's not much work there. It's for retired people. So I will um, move there if I with. have to, I guess. But uh, hopefully, she can manage there for a while by herself. Because it's a yeah. it's a long ferry trip and it's not insignificant amount of driving and it's not cheap to cross. It's, How much is it? I'm guessing it's probably fifty bucks. It's been a long okay. time since. I was curious because eventually one day I will get to your neck of the woods, so I'll need to know these things. Yeah, well, it's not you know millions, but I I I mean I I found out much to my chagrin that one of my favorite YouTube photographers who lives on Vancouver Island has pick, picked up things and moved to Nova Scotia. That's a way to go. So Wrong direction, to, but that is a very another island like, or coast anyway. I mean, it's like, so I'm going to get no more YouTube uh, photography less, uh, uh, videos from, from Vancouver Island from this guy. Mm. Like that, uh, Nova Scotia Why did he is, move there? I don't know. I, I mean, he hasn't even announced it on his YouTube channel yet, okay. but one of his friends, who often shows up in his videos but has a YouTube channel of his own, mentioned mentioned it in photographing like, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, uh, I, I, you should you should you should you should know that uh, that uh, uh, blah 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 that uh, Amanda and uh, I just I just blanked on his name. Uh, Amanda and Gavin have picked up sticks and moved to Nova Scotia, so we won't be doing videos together much anymore. It's like, ah, uh, wait, wait, what? Nova oh, Scotia. I see. It's like a collaboration. Oh, well, they, they, they wind up in each other's videos all the time. So, yeah. Not always, but frequently. You know, YouTubers I mean, tube together? Yeah, YouTubers tubing together doing photography. So, it's like... They have to have subjects to take photos of. I mean, maybe he thinks Vancouver's... Well. I mean, Gavin's originally from the UK. He moved to Canada, fell in love, married... Married a Vancouver girl, and now they've moved to Nova Scotia together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a a to simple cla- it's a simple classic tale. I think it's um, cheaper there. I'm not an expert, but... I mean, I would like to see Nova Scotia and Labrador in the Maritimes, if, if only to see icebergs. But I'd also see, like... Before oh, they're gone? Yeah. That's something you should gone. put in a museum. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> On that note, Jesse, I'll talk to you later and maybe the game or what have you. Yeah. If not, I will talk to you on the flip side tomorrow. I drive to Britain in snow. I think there's an update. Um, I think there's a big update, yes. Yeah, it wasn't huge, but yeah, uh, yeah, added yes. a new gun. And... But yeah, my, 
What new gun? I didn't see the new uh, gun. It's called an Ace. It's like an Israeli. Oh, I see. oh, I've gotten one of those already. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so apparently they've been doing lots of server updates on Tuesday nights, which have annoyed. Yeah, that's the standard, I think. Which have annoyed, 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 annoyed you know, uh, Sean Duke, Sean, and the rest that we I play with because we often play on Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. It's like, what the hell? Come not on, on that Just, night, that's the update, server update, and gaming I mean, update. So, anyway, have a good rest of your day, Jesse. I'll talk yep. to you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. It's, it's, I won't use the keyboard during our conversation, but, yeah. uh, but, but that's why I asked about my sound quality. Um, I could switch to the other machine in the sound booth, which has a membrane keyboard. Yeah, membrane's good, but um, also we want to get rid of that echo. All right, give me a minute. Yep. Uh, in fact, I need to, I need to hang up and switch Skype. So I'll, right. I'll be. Give me a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay, and get into Twitter. Paul, um, somebody tells me that uh, the Wendigo, somebody, somebody on the internet, um, is in uh, a Dungeons and Dragons supplement that I've got on hand, but I'm not seeing it in there. Um, it, the gods, demigods, and heroes supplement four, and that's the original D and D, and then it says you know the stats and stuff, but I don't see that that's the case. And then second edition, um. D and D, and then the rest of the discussion is, uh, yeah. So I don't remember ever seeing it in deities and demigods or any of the. Uh, no, it's not in deities and demigods. It might be in. I don't think it's um, in the monster manuals or even the British one. I can't remember what it's called. Fiendfolio. That's the one. No, it wouldn't be in Fiendfolio. It wouldn't be in the British well, one. Well, you never know. Doesn't have, really have, doesn't have much Canadian. Yeah, I don't know any Canadian. Yeah, but he's from England, right? So it's possible. I don't think. Um, hmm. I, I just don't remember I, ever I, seeing I, I, it I know, in I any know, of the I know there's, books. I know there's one, uh, a non, uh, I should say, a non uh, Wizards of the Coast uh D&D supplement it shows up shows up in uh what's it called um blah 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 um Cobalt Press's uh Midgard I know I know they have a Windigo in, the, in their in their world but yeah. as far as mainline D&D I don't think so oh wow did you watch I that mean, episode it, of Charmed <laughs> I did not watch the episode of Charmed. <laughs> Boy, you missed out. <laughs> that does remind me I have to watch something today or a podcast next Friday. Thank you for reminding me. I must do that today. Doing because the Wendigo show. No, Wendigo I'm not. I'm not, I'm not doing, no, it's not on the Wendigo. Uh, if you're ready, send. All right, I'm going to send the same to Marissa. Let me guess. She she got the time confused. Uh, time is an illusion. Podcast time doubly so. Uh, this is not a Douglas Adams show, sir.
Lunchtime, doubly so. Okay. This is just his more excuses for not finishing his books on time. All right. Um, okay, I'll do another search here. Oh, that's going to bring up a million things. Wow. What are you looking up? Uh, a coffee cat. <laughs> oh, lot of coffee cats up there. I thought it made something on topic. But it I is am. on topic, sir. How dare you? How dare? How dare I? Wendy hello, go- hello. Oh, there she is. Hello. Hello, Hi. Marissa. Guess what happened? I uh, don't know. <laughs> the exact same thing that happened the last time I tried to join a call with you guys. What was that? <laughs> My mouse stopped moving. Oh, my God. I thought God. it was the battery dead. It was actually my computer frozen, and I had to restart again. Jesus. And this that, is a that bad has time. never ha- Yeah, it doesn't happen any other time. Like, Just I didn't do anything different. No, I hadn't even turned on Skype yet. Yeah, it says last chatted over a year ago. That seems long. That's not right. Yeah. Quiet. Hey, uh, yeah, well, quick, ho- hopefully. Quick sound check. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yeah. No echoes so far. Okay, um, I'm not using a. Uh, I'm just using the laptop mic. Is that good enough? It sounds okay right now. Yeah. Okay. And we're not getting any echo. So. Well, I'm in a sound booth, so so I yeah, I'm rocking the place. Yeah, well, nice. you have a sound booth, but no like uh, awesome external mic. Oh, I do have an external mic. It just it just won't it just won't work with any of my any of my machines. I think it's actually dead. I need to replace oh, it. Oh yeah, that's got to be it. It's a big Yeti with a... Yeah, um, that's what I got. Yeah. Wait, didn't we talk about this? Maybe it was Marissa had a broken uh, blue microphone. Uh, I did at one point, yeah. Yeah. It it irritates me. They just uh, sent me another one for free. Right. Right. Wow. Why'd they they do that? It's a good company. It's a good company. Because it's a good company with with solid They have a lot of competition now. Um, uh, But they, they also just got bought out by Logitech, which is... It's kind of scary. Logi- oh, that's that's a little. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I think it might be a known issue as well. Like maybe that's also why they just send you a free one. Mm, yeah, it's a way way, way to um, avoid uh, public scandal as well. Yeah, <laughs> just like oh yeah, sometimes they don't work here. Mm-hmm. Just take another one and be quiet. <laughs> okay, that's not working. Okay, we're supposed to have Mr. Jim Moon. He's very hard to get these days. I've had difficulty getting him. Um, and he's been having some uh, huge issues with... Cannot hear anything typing. No. Um, he's been having some huge issues with uh, uh, Patreon. His uh, Patreon money uh, goes through some account called Payoneer, which... Uh, I should probably be familiar with, but the first time hearing of it is from him. And um, basically they said, uh, hey, uh, you you did some stuff you're not supposed to do, so we're deleting your account. And so he, he couldn't get his money out. What? Yeah. And then what did um, he, do? he didn't do anything. Um, what did then, they think he did? Th- they didn't say. But then uh, he's like really mad at them, right? So he goes and writes and... Uh, and they're, uh, hey, yeah, um, 
uh, oh, we're going to restore your account um, and the money's been refunded. And he says, yeah, I'd like a transaction number. And they're like, there's no such thing as a transaction number. <laughs> he says, that sounds like a lie. And so somebody like does a handwritten one and like takes a photo of it. <laughs> And sends what? that to him. And then the money doesn't come through, like, uh, the, you know, if it was a, uh, so it was it, apparently this is a big, uh, thing. Lots of people are having problems with this subcontractor called Payoneer. I don't, I don't know anything about it because I don't go into that, uh, <laughs> website and wow. do anything, but, um, wow. he relies on, uh, you know, his Patreons to, supplement his income and um that's just scary yeah i yeah. I've, I've had i'm sorry Marissa, go ahead no you go ahead it's fine i mean i've had issues with patreon before but uh um but i don't use a third party no i i don't think he chose this i think this is something that was foisted upon him pioneer by Patreon? That's what I was actually yeah, going to ask. Is yeah. this like a Patreon thing, or is this something that he added himself? No, it wasn't something he added himself. Uh, apparently, they subcontracted or something, and I don't know if that was... Um, I don't know. I've, I've never even heard of the company before. How do you spell it? P-A-Y-O-N-E-E-R. Weird. I know so many people use Patreon, so it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Why would Patreon use a company like that? I don't know. It's, it's probably to engage with the banking system, is is my guess. I don't know how... Uh, you think I, I would get it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it works exactly. Uh, because mm-hmm. I don't look at the Patreon stuff at all. Um, I, I do pay money out, but I it just comes out of my PayPal, so... Oh, yeah, so, so, so does he not use PayPal? I don't know. Um, I would that, assume he did. I, 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 I mean, if he's using Payoneer, maybe he isn't using PayPal, and so Payoneer is. It sounded like why. it sounded like he was switched uh, from whatever thing he was on to this other company, and you know, it's fine when everything's coming through, but as soon as you know they delete your account and say you violated service terms or something, uh, but apparently this is uh, not unique to him, and he's. <clears throat> um, very, he's he. It doesn't seem upset about uh, pay uh, Patreon, just Payoneer. So I, yeah. I, I was hoping to get the story out of him uh, a little more coherently than the way I'm putting it together, which is just having listened to his podcast uh, updates on this in a row uh, over uh, as the drama has been happening. Yeah, it's good to know there's something going on though. I might yeah, I might uh, dig into that a little bit too because. So many people rely on Patreon, and Indeed. that sucks. So let's type in Patreon. Aha. Uh, uh-huh. So what's the relationship? Get Pay and get paid with Payoneer, yeah. Does Patreon accept Payoneer? Yeah, so my guess is that some, um, some patrons use Payoneer. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's maybe he just yeah yeah instead of Patreon instead of PayPal, I can't see. Yeah, instead I, of PayPal to yeah yeah, it looks like and, that's what it is. PayPal and you probably have to have both right to get that. But, but you know, there's so many. There's coffee. This one's K O F I, right? Kofi, yes. 
Well, whatever. Oh, Kofi Coffee, yes. Uh, <laughs> just thinking, you know, buy me a coffee, right, is the, yeah. Is yeah. the logic. Yeah. Whatever. Oh, I found it. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, man, look at this. This pro- I was, like, looking on Reddit to see yeah. if there's anyone talking about it. Yeah. There's, like, someone on there. What a terrible problem. They're like, oh, my Patreon just blew up, and I'm getting, like, 12,000 euros a month. How can I safely withdraw all my money? Like, right. <laughs> how lovely. <laughs> well, it's it, it's mostly, like, what your kink is. If your kink is is um, popular, yeah. <laughs> it's a popular kink. Um, She's 18 years old. She's got no idea what to do with all that money. That's so cool. (laughs) You just have to have happen to have to have the popular kink. So, are are you talking about Patreon or are you talking about OnlyFans? Same difference. (laughs) Same difference, bud. I don't think so. I'm. I'm. Well, I'll just hold back. Well, you may be more of a (laughs) OnlyFans expert than I, but. I, I get. Uh, I supplement my income. I mean, you know, if, if, <laughs> on uh, OnlyFans, I got it <laughs> with, with Patreon. I mean, it would have been. Uh, uh, I've been. I've been trying to grow it, but. Uh, um, but, but we'll you got to shake that booty, my friend. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I got to get into the uh, into the into the gay men bear scene. That would. That would. <laughs> you, you will do that, very that would, well. Would for life, right? Yeah, yeah you would. You're gonna have to, you know, go to the gym every week to maximize your glutes and your. Traps and uh, a few, it, I want to well, say two other kinds of muscles, but I, abs. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad we had this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, my favorite podcasts is um, uh, Golan Globus Theater. Two very cynical dudes in uh, Detroit, and it's it, they just do movie summaries basically, um, but they have their own uh, <laughs> descriptions of how. Basically, all these 80s movies were put together and theories and stuff like that. And one of the things they're always uh, hawking is uh, peck jelly, P-E-C jelly. Peck jelly? <laughs> yeah, because, jelly? well, you know, in R- Rambo 2, First Blood Part 2, <laughs> um, they had to make uh, Stallone's pecs pop. So they use peck jelly. <laughs> it's uh, like a product. You could go down to the store and you... Put on your peck jelly, like you know, hair Man. hair product. And there's all these '80s movies Man. where, uh, you know, you see uh, Stil- Sylvester Stallone or Schwarzenegger or uh, what's the the guy from Belgium with the legs? Van Damme. Van Damme. Um, they need their peck jelly. It's you know essential for they the film to. <laughs> so, <laughs> except no substitutes get the get the genuine quality peck jelly. I'm just not going to be able to not say that phrase all day today. It's great, right? Mm-hmm. Back jelly. Back jelly. Mm-hmm. Because you need it. All right. Um, I I don't see any response from Mr. Jim Moon. It's uh, not likely. So let us begin, shall we? Yes, sir. All right. Sure. All right. I got my recorder working. It's not broken yet. But... Um, I started mine again. We'll see if yeah. it lasts. I want to see if there's any. Um... Yeah. Okay. All right. I got. I got some stuff here. Uh, and Paul. Paul. How soon they forget? How would I forget? You're saying, Coffee Cat is not related to uh, 
the Wendigo? How dare you, sir? What are you giving? What are you doing, me? This is what my you... proof that Coffee Cat is clearly related to the Wendigo. Oh, that was what four years ago? Yeah, years ago? <laughs> yeah. Like, Jesse never forgets a, a debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, more importantly, he commented. Right? He says, poor but coffee that was cat. Four years ago. <laughs> three years ago, Jesse. I don't remember every. Do you remember every picture I post? Uh, all the ones I see. Okay, so. So. So who was in the picture? So who was in the picture with the. Okay, so I took a picture in Nepal of how many dogs. How many dogs did I take a picture of in Nepal? Well, I, I have a good answer for this. Um, yes. I'm dog face blind. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I'm gonna stop here and just take the take the L. <laughs> I forgot about your comic. Yeah, and there's a story, a companion story to go with it. Um notice that in this picture I have a um supplemented the mythology. Um not only does Coffee Cat have feet of fire, um Coffee Cat also has uh, or um, the Wendigo also has a relationship with the snow. And this is actually in that original Matt Fox illustration. If you guys have all seen that in the PDF. Yeah. I I think this might be saved for the podcast, though. Yeah, whatever. Hey, not whatever. Jesse's hey. a fierce host, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. Uh, it's, our, it's only save it for the podcast if Jesse says it. Well, this is all no, this is all in the pre-show that. or the post-show, <laughs> so it sort of counts as something. Um, is there anything else we need to um, do before we begin? No. Do we do? Okay. The willows. No, not the willows. The Wendigo. Um. Whoa. What, what's our order? This is a Paul question. Um. I. Oh, that's a good question. I don't. I have to look. That All right, up. here's uh, my guess. Oh, hold, hold, hold. You, you can just make it happen. We'll Jesse, Paul, Marissa, yeah, Brian. Yes, yes. Marissa is still well ahead of Brian. Yeah, because of all those PKDs, which I believe yes. we have one scheduled. Um, I uh, hope so. Um, maybe we should do that a uh, little bit of business first. So oh, next yes. week we have, we have is souvenir. souvenir. Marissa is not scheduled for it. I don't know why, oh, but what? Souvenir is well, Let's a, fix that. Yeah, so if you're available, um, Souvenir is next week. That's the one where oh, they go to a planet. Week? Yep, next uh, oh, 24th, says, uh, which is a Sunday. That's the one where they go to a planet where everybody's dressed in uh, so- Socrates-style robes, and they walk around the cedars uh, telling how life should be, and then um, that infection spreads to the greater earth empire that they've been disconnected from. That's how I remember is, that one. Is this a short story or it is a novel? short story. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good because I'm in Britain again. I believe it's under an hour. This week. We'll try, but so I'm I putting very Marissa question mark. Yeah. That's a bit short notice to, well, that's the problem is you're not mm-hmm. on enough to get notice. Next week after that, uh, uh, first of May is Black Amazon of Mars. Then, uh, the shunned house on the seventh. Then, um, <laughs> on the 14th, 
A Power in the Era of Post-Human Capitalism by Slavo Zizek. That sounds fun. And then there's a empty slot for some reason. And then this one sounds good too. Ghostland in Search of a Haunted Country by Edward Parnell. This is a British book, a nonfiction. And finally, The Thing in the Woods by Harper Williams, a.k.a. the author of The Velveteen Rabbit. You guys know about this book? No. No, I do not. No. Uh, Velveteen Rabbit Lady. Um, I know about Velveteen Rabbit. Yeah, she she wrote a uh, weird fiction book with uh, werewolves uh, that likely informed a uh, – we know that Lovecraft read it. Um, and it, it probably informed the Dunwich Horror, which is kind well, of cool. Well, since I've updated this, these numbers, I need to read them. Speaking of noisy keyboards. Well, we're not, not starting fine. the podcast yet. Yeah, we are. Yeah. We haven't we haven't done the hot low of Jesse. We're only in the pre-show. <laughs> yeah, well, we're waiting for the noisy keyboard to stop. Okay, I'll stop the noisy keyboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure, be that. Well, way. Or just get a a quiet membrane, one of those robots. I don't like the membrane keyboard. Uh, no, they suck, right? But this is the kind of thing you have to do for your listener. Your ideal <laughs> listener. If SFF Audio were to get nominated for a Hugo and you don't want that. Then I get a new. It's not that I don't want it. Is I don't don't care. I don't respect it because it's. If I did, then I would have to play all the games, and I don't want to play all the games. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I I would take the rocket ship around the room, Uh, and then I'd sell it on eBay. Oh no! 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 Wow, that was fun. Sell it on eBay. Uh, or you could do like what Kate Winslet does, and like she keeps her Oscars in the in the bathroom, so that guests can <laughs> what? acceptance. Yeah, <laughs> do what with them? So guests oh, like, like their acceptance. Be- yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, and play sense. it receiving the Oscar and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Actually, a, it's like a play thing. Well, you, and now you I want to do one of those acceptance you speeches. Guys, oh no, I did get nominated again, right? I do. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. I'm not going to win. but You might. Um, I think I know who's going to win this year. Whose turn is it, I, Paul? I think it's Cora's turn. If you See? Want to <laughs> I knew it. It's all no, about no, turns. No, 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 he came in a real close second place last year, and the person who won last year was not is not on the ballot. I think it's Cora's turn. All That's right. It. I, I, but, but there are two people I was who have never somebody, been on the ballot before, so they could, they, Evan, could be wild, they could be was, wild cards. I was telling Alex Evan Rice. that Cat Rambo, it's her turn, people are saying. Cat uh, Rambo has never been nominated. That's why people are saying it's her which, turn. Which it's is, not fair. Which, which, I, well, I've nominated her work before, but she's never broken through, which is yeah. really weird. All right. got to stop that keyboard for us. Okay. Start. I'll stop. All right. Okay. Everybody know their place? Yes. All right. Yes. All right. Uh, I'm not ready. One second. I have to type in uh, uh, the name of the story, which is the Wendigo. Wendigo. Because if I don't have a security blanket, I feel off. They are Wendigo. Uh, some like Wikipedia entry or whatever. And this, I got it. Here we oh, go. Right. Here we go.